Okay, we're live, Patrick. Let's do it. Great. Yeah, so I just want to introduce my guest, Patrick O'Sullivan, who's the host of the Wandering DP podcast. Welcome to the Wandering DP podcast, where we focus on Leica photography, cinematography, and life offset. And now your host, Patrick O'Sullivan. I'm very privileged and honored to have Patrick on because I've been following his work for a long time. My discovered his channel when I was about 17 years old. And uh, yeah, I learned everything that I know from him. So I'm very grateful to have the illustrious and industrious Wandering DP on the uh, on the show for the first episode. I, I appreciate the introduction. It's it's good to be here and happy to be the first. Yeah. I, I know that there will be many more to come. So yeah, yeah, happy. Yeah. So how's your week been? Like I know we were talking earlier and uh, you said you've got till noon. And so it, are you pretty flat out at the moment with work and stuff? It is. It sort of just kicked off again here after sometimes you get a little break in the action in the commercial space, which is mainly where I operate. And January in Australia is usually pretty cruisy as people go away for the break and agencies sort of take time off which they're sort of the top of the funnel where the work comes from and then as things start to pick back up you find february starts really where things ramp back up to normal so it has been a busy week of shooting and uh meetings and everything else that goes along with trying to get a commercial done so what what sort of processes are you going through at the moment and you sort of said that there's seasons um where it gets busy or where it's quieter like could you give me an idea of what that sort of looks like over a one year sort of time frame yeah there's ebbs and flows and a lot of it has to do with the financial year here which ends in june so uh lots of times the months before then people will be interested in spending the budget that they have allocated to Either whether it's government programs that look to do advertisements or uh, companies themselves, agencies will pick up on that and they have certain times that they will want to be spending and certain times that they won't. So it'll be a big lead up usually to the end of the financial year and then there'll be a little bit of a break uh, in the July period or a slower period and then it all kicks back up again for uh, Christmas type stuff and it's just a blitz into uh, the final few months of the year and sometimes it can go either way. It It can be really, really busy. Leading up to Christmas, is people are trying to get things off, or if it's been a slower year, it'll really slow down uh, as people go away. But we're in a unique position here in WA because there's not a whole lot of industry in terms of, there's not a whole lot of film mm-hmm. personnel, and uh, that means it can sometimes be really, really tricky. Like it is at the moment, there's uh, narrative projects going on, which uh, a lot of the people are drawn to in the film industry only because it gives you regular work as opposed to commercials. So as those projects come up, it gets harder and harder to find crew. So, um, yeah, it's it's a unique situation here. But uh, one that you get used to over the years of working, you start to sort of find your rhythm and, and can uh, bank on when it's going to pick up and when it isn't. And usually right now, this time of year is when uh, things really start to kick off. Tell me a bit about like where the, the sort of work comes through and your reasoning for relocating to, to Perth is. Have you always been here? Um, yeah, tell our listeners a little bit about that. I know I grew up in the States. I grew up in Los Angeles and spent, yeah, up until I was about 18, I was in uh, the US. And then I traveled all around playing rugby. I played rugby for almost 10 years between oh, wow. New, New Zealand and then Uh, off to France for a few years and it was on one of my breaks that I came back home to Los Angeles where I had uh, friends that were sort of on the periphery of the industry of the film industry uh, more having to do with post-production and so I had lots of time off between the end of the season and the start of the next season so I would go and just sort of hang out and dabble with them and that's where I also at the time met my wife who were 
the, the woman who would become my wife, and mm -hmm. she is from Perth. Oh, wow. So, That's amazing. So you, you moved yeah. for love, so to speak. Moved for love, exactly. I don't I wasn't told the complete truth about the situation. I'd never been to Perth before. Right. Uh, but I did, I did move for love. It's a beautiful spot uh, for lifestyle. Absolutely. Uh, knocked it out of the park for lifestyle, but it was a huge change for the volume of work and just the industry in general where... Uh, if you've been to Los Angeles, you know it is the it is the heartbeat of that city. Everybody is involved somehow. Every coffee shop is filled with people that are writing scripts or trying to get jobs done. It's almost, you know, well, it's not almost. It has become sort of a, a joke amongst the rest of the country that, uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to go far in Los Angeles to find somebody trying to make it, which makes it a unique spot if you are trying to come up in the industry because you have such a vast undergrowth of people who are aspiring to do great things. And that can be a, a big advantage for people that are just starting out because the hardest part of cinematography is just getting your shot, like just getting, getting on break. set. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, look, yeah. like that's definitely been my experience in Perth is like, um, fortunately, I've, I've had the privilege to, to get on some sets and, and stuff like that. Um, I, I've been on some sets with Lewis and Matt Sav, but it does seem that overall the the sort of volume of work is is a lot sort of lower than it would be in say say the the us or la in per particular yeah absolutely yeah it's not a drop in the bucket of the volume of work that is uh, that is elsewhere and it makes sense just through population and also in the commercial space mm -hmm. there is there's really no w i mean the, the landscape for advertising has changed so much in the past even since i've been here the past sort of 10 years it's changed so much about where money is spent and how money is spent but mm. even then, even then, when big money was being thrown at television advertising, which is really the only spot you could advertise back in the day, uh, as that has grown less and less, the the companies even then there weren't that many companies that were advertising on television for brand awareness, which is really, if you are a cinematographer or director or a production company, uh, that is the time that you can shine, you can flex your storytelling muscles and your visual muscles is brand brand content. Mm -hmm. Whereas here in WA, it's, it's very much what we call retail, which is we have a sale or we have a service that you think you need. We're going to tell you and show you what that service is. That's right. a vastly different uh, creative enterprise Absolutely. Than, uh, than building brand. So uh, it's not only the lack of work or the lower volume of work, but it's also the, the end goal of whatever it is you're trying to create, which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a completely different world. Yeah. So tell me, um, tell me like where and, and why your cinematography journey started and, um, and did that start in, in LA or did that sort of become a thing when you got married and moved here? If so, was the move sort of motivated by the lower volume or was that sort of just like a, uh, like I'd prefer to work a bit more, but, uh, yeah, I guess I'm going to have to, to move here sort of thing. Yeah, well, I, I, I made the move right at the time that cinematography, at least in my own world, like, I'm, you know, you can't know what the world was like before you got into it. But as soon as I was starting to dip my toe in the commercial space, uh, it was just becoming possible to no longer have to live in the larger markets. Like you, I was just getting to because there's a certain tier of project or a certain tier of a cinematographer's career where you are only working on local projects, right? You find your footing uh, convincing people around you and the network around you that uh, I can do this work. I can make your images look nice and you can come to rely on me and you can trust me and I'll be there and I'll pick up the phone and I'll do a good job and I'll come in under budget. And you build up that little network. But eventually your work, if you are lucky enough, will be seen by other people and other people will just know because as you get better in the film industry, it becomes easier to recognize uh, 
talent in any department, right? You start to be able to recognize, oh, what what is the director doing versus what is the cinematographer doing versus what is uh, the production designer doing? And as individuals who understand what you bring to the table are exposed to projects that you're doing, mm -hmm. there's an opportunity for you to expand your network and go farther afield. And it was just then that I was sort of dipping my toe in the water of no longer having to be where the majority of the individuals lived and where the work was generating was generated from. So I, I didn't really have a, I, I, I wasn't going to uh, immediately take a hit moving down to WA. I mean, I didn't know anybody in the film industry here, but I was confident enough with the material that I had that I could continue working elsewhere. M most of my jobs were outside of Los Angeles anyway. So I was uh, confident that I could continue to work elsewhere. So it wasn't really, I mean, it wasn't dictated by work at all. It was simply a lifestyle choice uh, to begin with. Mm -hmm. But then coming here, you know, you build up a network fairly quickly and slotting in. I came at a really opportune time in Western Australia. The cinematographers who had been working for uh, a number of years were all, for one reason or another, uh, sort of winding down their time in the commercial space. That's because some were moving on to right. narrative things, some were retiring, some were moving to other places because it is, it's a very difficult place in a competitive market to make a living as just a cinematographer. Um, so they, they were feeling the pinch, some of them, and others were, uh, you know, just moving up in their career. And oftentimes you'll find, even amongst the crew here, is they'll do a certain amount of jobs for a number of years, and then they'll find out that there is a ceiling to how many days they can work. Like if they're working on every project in Western Australia, which is completely feasible, uh, you're still going to be under days everywhere else in the country. So you're going to be, you will have less income and less opportunities than if you move farther afield. So, um, yeah, I just came in at a lucky time when that was happening. There was a hole in the market and I was, yeah, you, you couldn't really repeat the number of contacts or the, the volume of work that I was able to generate early on. Um, any other way than just being lucky, really mm -hmm. just timing, being in the right time at the right place and being, uh, experienced enough to be able to deliver on the expectations that people had. So this this process of um, becoming a DP, dipping your toes into the the commercial uh, world, as you say, began in in America, and then you followed that over to to Perth as well. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and it all really started because you know I didn't have a love for cinematography when I was a kid. I didn't have a background in taking pictures or anything. I needed something to do after rugby, and I needed something to do that would. Uh, you know, I was looking for the biggest bang for the buck and, uh, through my contacts inside of the industry, I was able to see from post-production, get a little bit of an insight as to what the images or what the work actually looked like before it was presented to the public to right. see sort of the level of what was coming in. And then, you know, you have conversations with friends around you and you start to realize how much money these individuals are commanding. And it was a, it was a different time than it is now, right? There was a lot more, uh, I would say trust and responsibility on the cinematographer's shoulders. This is back just as the Alexa was coming into, well, coming onto commercial productions. It was all film at the time. So it was a much different environment. And uh, the cinematographer in those days, especially in the commercial space, less so in, in narrative, but in the commercial space, you're, you were really paying for insurance that whatever they said was going to come true in that negative because you were they were the only people that could speak that language. So you were... They were basically a translator and you were trusting them that what they were saying was going to ring true in the final product because you had no way as the person paying, as the producer, as the client, as the agency to actually verify that. Yeah, yeah. So that was when these, I mean, and for other creative reasons, obviously the, the fees were um, quite high at the time mm -hmm. and realizing that and then seeing the finished product, I thought, well, this is, 
if this is what the finished product is, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could do that. Definitely. And that was really the start of it. It wasn't any, you know, it wasn't any more romantic than that. It was uh, seeing what the competition was doing and realizing you could make um, a good living and have some fun doing it. Right. And so what, what did you say that the competition wasn't doing in that sense? Well, it just looks so much different than the finished product, right? You see something on television and you think, uh, wow, well, this is amazing. All these things come together and this is all uh, brought on by one individual, right? That's what, it, at least from the outside, that was my perception of the industry is this one person is creating this look and uh, organizing all of these things and generating this team that is going to make this all possible. And do you see, once you peek behind the curtain, you realize just how many people it takes to make something amazing and just how much responsibility all of those individuals have. And you start to realize that the role of the cinematographer, the higher up you go, uh, the less and less it becomes on the tools, the less and less it becomes uh, technically managing things. And the, the more it becomes about managing people and expectations and discovering and deciding on a look rather than figuring out how we're going to get that look. So it, it becomes much less, it's, you know, it's, it's a weird sort of career path that you have to go down to. Mm -hmm. You have to learn that technical stuff, but then uh, very quickly you realize that that has a limitation. Your, your technical ability will only get you so far. And once you get to a certain level of career and on certain types of jobs, everybody has that technical level. So then you have to ask yourself, well, where is the actual value that you bring to the table? What is it that you bring that um, that can make it better than what everyone else can offer. And uh, you quickly realize that that is not, uh, you know, knowing the technical jargon or knowing how to set up a lamp or any of the other things that I thought at least uh, what cinematography was at the beginning. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience in terms of having listened to your podcast and, and followed along with the, the blog and stuff pretty pretty closely. I almost sort of feel that I, I have hit a sort of ceiling point as far as um, when it comes to uh, being able to make the technical knowledge useful in the sense yeah. of like I almost feel like in order for me to progress further, I would have to be um, getting on a set with a crew and your coming from a background where you know you've been playing rugby uh, presumably professionally uh, for, a, for a long time and you didn't sort of uh, grow up with a love for, for film or, um, or cinematography particularly and so in a sense I like I find it surprising because your your level of work is is so meticulous and and you've got um, such a, a great eye for for lensing and for details and stuff like that and and I see such a consistency in your work and it almost like it's almost like a bit wow okay like I didn't I didn't see that coming I didn't realize Patrick was a was a footballer and and I guess the experience I've had is um, a little different in the sense of like I've I've always been intrigued by filmmaking and, and movies since I was a very young uh, child. And uh, so I guess, tell me a little bit about where that sort of point for you was when you sort of was were like, I just want to do something more with my life than, uh, you know, running around with a, a football all day. I, I want to create images. I want to be involved in a filmmaking process. Was there a sort of um, eureka moment in a sense where you were like the scales fell from your eyes and you were just like, yeah, I, I really want to do this. I wouldn't say there was a eureka moment on the side of, yeah, I really want to do this. It was more, I had my life completely flipped upside down. It was more by necessity. Uh, the in, I, I, I wish I could say that I was good enough to you know, have a successful rugby career and then choose when I wanted to retire and no longer play. 
But I went from on a team in France to off a team in, uh, you know, a matter of days of just not getting my contract renewed and we're no longer interested. And now you have to find something to do. And I had at the same time, I had been traveling. We're not traveling. I had been living abroad for a long time at that point and uh, and was just like, well, I, I could do it all again. I could go try and make new contacts, try and make a new team. Uh, but it was that was a large sort of investment that I had run my course with rugby. I had realized uh, years before then that it was a really great way to see the world, uh, but I, I didn't have the I didn't have the skills, physical skills to play at the highest level. So I, I sort of knew that the writing was on the wall and I then had nothing to do. I needed to come up with something to do with my life that I wanted that I was interested in. I had a little bit of runway because of rugby um, and a little bit of freedom over those last few years, knowing that, you know, I wasn't going to be playing in the top leagues until I decided to hang up the boots like it was uh, it was fairly clear. So that gave me an opportunity to say, okay, well, where can I have fun and where can I make the most amount of money to uh, be able to secure my future in the best way possible? Like it was that simple. It was like, well, I don't have a job now. I need to find something to do. Uh, and all of the contacts that I had in Los Angeles at the time were still were in the, the post-production side of things. So I thought, okay, I'll just go and hang out with them and, uh, and see what comes of it. Like there was no, you know, there was no plan put in place. Um, and then when I heard about how much money you could make as a cinematographer, that was it. I was like, okay, I, I'm pretty sure I can do that. I'm pretty sure I can do all of those things. And the way that I, you know, got, I would say the way that I was able to level up my skills as fast as I did to go from nothing to uh, having some sort of idea, at least an idea enough to get on set and to have someone trust me with their project, is I went away and, I, and put myself into a, a hole of learning and didn't come out for years. Uh, and, you know, people, sometimes I always say on podcasts, like you can have, it's very easy to say that. And, you know, to just hear it on the podcast, be like, oh, okay, you just went away for years. And what did you do? Like that, that's, that's, uh, it doesn't seem like much of an investment, mm -hmm. but I studied images by myself, trying to reverse engineer what people were doing, because if I could do what they were doing, well, then I could do the job. And if I could do the job, then I could be secure and making a living. Like that was the motivation. And I did that for years of my life. So imagine every day just looking at images, trying to reverse engineer how they do it and coming up with a system of exactly all of the images that I liked. Number one, finding those, finding the tastes that you have and the things that you're drawn to, and then questioning why you're drawn to those things and then discovering a pattern that emerges from those images going, okay, well, how can I recreate that? How can I do that? Testing it and trying it. And, you know, I have, um, I've told this on other podcasts before, but I have terabytes, hundreds of terabytes of images of me filming myself and me filming a mannequin in a thousand different lighting environments all by myself in my house, just trying to get better and better and better and better and better. And eventually you put in enough time and effort and you are able to reap the benefits. Like you, you will get better. Cinematography is, it's a weird thing because no one is born a natural cinematographer, right? You not like, it's not like you can be born a gifted sprinter or something like mm -hmm. the, the skills that are necessary to be really good at making images. Those are not natural. Yeah. So they have to be. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so, yeah. That's a great. You can either point. do it in a long process or you can do it in a condensed process. So that was it. That was I decided. Okay, this is what I can do. I see a little market in. I see a little hole in the market, and 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 went for it. Really. So learned versus born talent, right? Was that something that um, applied to your communication with other people on a set, for example, versus working solo? Was there a sort of a thing where like you were able to work better solo, you know, setting up shots with mannequins and yourself and, and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, tell me about that. Is the, is the communication sort of 
aspect of the thing very much a learned skill or is it is it just something that you you know you're just naturally a fairly charismatic guy and you can naturally sort of just convince people to to do what you need them to do sort of thing yeah not at all and i should probably preface the story with the fact that i i was never on another film set no short films no commercials i'm never i was never on a set as another job until i was a cinematographer so the very first job i ever did was the first time that I was on a set with other people. And so I had no idea how things worked. I had no idea uh, what a gaffer did or what a grip did or any of that stuff. I just knew how to make nice images on my own. And I was able to convince somebody that I could make nice images for them. And it was way, I was way underwater, like completely out of my league, knowing nothing. And learning that communication quickly though, you realize with the amount that you have to get through, because it's one thing to get nice images on your own without time pressure, uh, without uh, talent pressure or uh, monetary pressure. Like it's one thing to have those skills to be able to talk about what makes a nice image. It's a completely different one to have to manage doing that multiple times over a day where you're up against the elements that would have you fail at any time unless you were able to thwart them through either teamwork or um, you know proper planning basically having a good team around you and communicating how you're going to stop whatever it is that might stand in your way from getting good images. Those are two vastly different things. So when I started, I had no knowledge of how to do any of that. I just stumbled through it. And I did a lot, I made a lot of mistakes and the work suffered because I was not, I didn't know how to delegate the information. I basically, the way that I would put it now, I didn't know the filtration process that was necessary on a film set. You know, you don't realize the hierarchy, the structure that is in place, much like the military, it makes things more efficient. And oftentimes you'll come into a situation like that, at least me, who's naturally rebellious against those things and would say like, well, we could do it differently. Like the, surely there's a better way to do this than, than what has been done in the past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you quickly realize that the efficiencies, there's just so much to be done to make anything good, right? It's a little bit like talking about how you go into a hole. Um, it's easy to skip over those years that you study. When you watch something online or when you watch your favorite commercial or you watch your favorite film, it's really easy to think, oh, you know, the director did a great job or the cinematographer, the lighting is just fantastic. It's like mm. you grossly underestimate how many skilled people worked tirelessly for days on end. Like, and then you judge what the results of those people get. And then you judge versus what you get on your own with like a little one man band and a, uh, you know, a five way reflector. And you think, oh, they, they're getting much better stuff than me. It's like, yeah, they, because there's a, there's a whole world, there's a chasm. There's a huge difference, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for people in any situation, right? Like people have a problem understanding um, just how impactful those things can be. So for Absolutely. me, and I didn't learn, I, I, the communication was 100% learned on set, realizing through the mistakes that I made, but I've always been, I've always looked at this like every job is an opportunity for me to get better and I want to get better because that allows me to do more work. And if I do more work, uh, I'm more secure in my future for opportunities for future employment. Like that was the entire thinking. So I took detailed, copious notes all the time on every shot of every setting, of everything that I did right, of everything that I did wrong. I have stacks and stacks from every shoot that I've ever been on of wanting because I knew I was not good. Yeah. Right. I was good enough to be there, but I knew it's, and cinematography is awesome because it is subjective. Like you see the final result. Is this what you wanted? Yes or no? No. Okay. Well, why isn't it? There is a reason somewhere along the decision tree. There is a reason while someone like 
you know, whose work I really respect, like a Roger Deakins or a Greg Frazier or Adam Arkapaw, these gentlemen uh, and ladies, they're, they're able to get better results than I am. That's just a fact. Mm. Like, what are they doing differently? Somewhere along the lines, they don't have access, especially when you get to a level where you have the same tools that they have. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's when the reality hits. Because up until that point, you can say, well, I don't have X camera. I don't have X in the lighting team or the lights themselves. Uh, so that's easy to sort of gloss over why they might be getting better results. But once you get to a stage where you have all those things and you're still not getting the results, uh, it's nice because there's nowhere else to point the finger. It's like, you know, the buck stops with you on a mm-hmm. set. The images are your responsibility. So if they're not good, uh, at least in my mind, they weren't good and it was my problem and I had to fix it. And the way to fix it is to find out where was the, you know, the chink in the armor yes. of my decisions. And, and that took, you know, I mean, it still takes, <laughs> I'm still doing it today. Like we had a shoot the, just the other day and through all of our planning, through all of my ideas, it's like, sometimes it just doesn't go right. One decision doesn't go right. And you're like, okay, well, note to self, put that one in the diary. This is uh, a mistake not to be made again. And if you cross off a mistake, every job that you do 10 years down the line, you're going to be pretty good. That's really interesting. And like, it's, it's fascinating to hear that, um, you know, someone that works at the level that you work at, um, still does uh, plenty of note taking and, um, you're, you're, I guess maybe not making blunders, but making little mistakes that you can, you can learn from to maybe improve your work sort of 1%, 1% every time. You mentioned something really interesting before about hierarchies and, and that sort of thing and how they're, they're there for a reason and how we sort of might look at a movie and go, Hey, like Jeff Cronenworth did a great job on this movie or Roger Deakins did a great job on that shot. Or maybe we attribute it to the gaffer or the director or whoever we might attribute it to, but I think the interesting thing you highlighted to me was that, well, neither you or I have any access at all to the sort of conversations that might have gone on in pre-production or even during production that might have led to the results being what they were. Yeah, I would say yes, that is true, that you don't have access to that information. But at the same time, you you realize uh, the more jobs that you do in the space, just how much different individuals who are successful over time have to be operating than you are Uh, because no matter what you do on the day, no matter how much you have prepped or the things that you have done that you feel good about, like there is something missing from your projects that those individuals are able to do. And if you do that enough times where you fall short, you think, okay, well, there's, it's got to be something outside of being on set. Like there are decisions that have to be made well beforehand. And this is what over the years, where at least where I project the majority of the value that a cinematographer brings to any set or any project. And I, I didn't stumble on, on this on my own. You know, I was lucky enough to have somebody on the podcast who explained it to me from a producer's perspective mm-hmm. is the cinematographer, their job is to look out into the future and to be able to spot all of the things that are going to either um, prohibit final images from what they want in their head to becoming actualized or to in it, like to help Uh, get those things done. And the further that you can look into the future, the more valuable you become to the project. Because you have to imagine on these sets of hundreds of people have to be coordinated. If you wait until the day when everyone is standing around dealing with an issue, uh, there isn't a huge efficiency loss. Mm -hmm. And a huge efficiency loss on set means everyone gets squeezed. And that's a a problem. If people are getting squeezed, number one, it's not a great work environment. And number two, the, the work itself suffers. Like you won't be able to do all the things that you want to do to make the images come to life. And what you realize pretty quickly 
is that the difference between a Greg Frazier or Bradford Young, those images and the images of the vast majority of individuals that, that are working cinematographers, so professional cinematographers, the mm. difference is about two or three percent, right? They, they make it look two or three percent better, but they do it every single setup and they do it every single shot. And yep. over time, those things compound to such a huge level that it's night and day, right? Mm -hmm. the, the difference between those images. So what are they doing? It's not actually on set, right? It's, it's being able to foresee or look out into the future and then tell the entire team around them, hey, this is going to come up if we do X, Y, or Z. Like these issues are going to come up. We should look at that now. Like you cannot be that consistent over that many years and have that not be the case. And that's something that's, it's, I think you almost have to discover it on your own that that is, that is the reality of the situation. But then you have to, at least in my mind, you have to run those through. You can either do it on a project by project basis and uh, your skills can increase at however many projects you get a year, or you can run experiments in your head all of the time and get reps all of the time for projecting out into the future. If you want, I don't know, if, you, if a director comes to you and they want it to look like um, Mad Max, right? I can think of a thousand different things that would make it not look like Mad Max. So how do we eliminate those things that will stop us from making it look like Mad Max? And then you're looking for all of those things in pre-production. So you, the majority of the work for getting things off the ground as a cinematographer is before you ever set foot on set, which is a, it's a hard thing when you invest all this time to get really good at operating on set to realize that, you know, that's maybe 10% of it. 90% of creating the image is gathering the team and communicating with them. This is exactly what we want and looking for the problems. Uh, but if you are in this business long enough, you find that that's the case with any successful project uh, that, that comes off looking the way that you want it to. Absolutely. And um, you, you mentioned some, uh, something that I do want to come back to, which is this idea of um, translating the image that is in your mind, that, um, that you have in your mind, the creative vision, let's say, onto a, a digital sensor or a, a piece of um, celluloid. Um, and I do want to come back to that. But... Um, before we do that, I want to just take a step back because we've been talking about a lot of um, jargon and a lot of um, stuff about like the way a film set works and the um, the hierarchy and that sort of thing. And so um, there's a lot of roles that have a lot of interactions with the cinematographer. So can you tell our listeners, um, firstly, what a cinematographer does and what their relationship is to, um, say, the director and the gaffer and the lighting team? Because um, I feel like in my mind, a lot of people that I talk to have this idea of um, cinematography as a very technical sort of thing where it's like you're just sort of setting up a camera or, or setting up lights and, and it's less of an artistic thing. And, and that's, that's what the director does sort of thing. And so is, is there sort of a set role or is it, is it sort of variable depending on the, the personality and temperament of the, the people involved? Um, tell me a little bit about that and what the differences are and what the relationship between the, the director and the cinematographer and the rest of the crew is. Yeah, I would say 100% you hit the nail on the head. It is variable to the people involved. There's no two ways. No director operates the same as another. There are some people that are super camera savvy. They wanna be involved in every shot. They wanna be involved in uh, shooting the storyboards ahead of time on set. David, they might wanna- David Fincher actually... might be a good example of that. Absolutely. And they want to, they might on set, they want to operate the camera. You know, there's, there's huge levels. And then there's other people 
who will either in the commercial world, it's not uncommon to switch from the agency side of things to the production side of things. So you'll get, uh, you know, former um, ad agency folks that, that come over because they're really good at selling and coming up with the concepts themselves. So in, if you think about a commercial, uh, a director's job in the commercial space is they have to sell whatever, whatever way that they're going to make this ad, they have to sell that to so many people before you ever get on set. Like the job of a director in the commercial space is, it's a, it is a, a, not a job that I would want to do, but you have to be very good at presenting yourself and presenting ideas, not just coming up with the ideas, but presenting them and making them uh, understood by a huge number of people before you ever get there. And then walking them through the process as you're getting the images, as you're creating the story. It is a, it's so much different than a narrative director. Um, so th there are two different worlds we're talking about. If we talk about the commercial space with a director, normally you get a gauge very quickly on what type of director it will be. If someone's super interested in the cameras or if they're super interested in lenses or anything like mm -hmm. that, you might get someone that's much more photographically savvy. Yeah. Um, if not, then really the job lands on the cinematographer to understand the, I always put it in sandbox terms, like the production comes to you and it's your job to decipher what kind of sandbox are you going to play in for whatever this ad might be, right? How much money do they have? Right. Uh, how much time do we have? What is the final goal? So m more times than not, you'll be sent the treatment, which is the director's way of selling the job to the client and the agency from the production company side of things. So you'll be sent the treatment and you'll get images there and then you'll uh, catch up with the director in a phone call and they will tell you, they'll give you some clues as to what to look for and you might send images back and forth or um, I, I do that much less than I used to because I'm much more confident in my ability to translate whatever the director's looking for. You know, oftentimes they'll give you words of soft light or hard light or uh -huh. warm or cool. Um, so my job then is to translate whatever it is they're saying or whatever it is they've sold in those treatments to becoming reality. And again, you, I always invert and just say, okay, what are the things that are going to get in our way? And then you interact with the production up until then, up until the actual day, all of the tools that are necessary. So you're gathering all of the components and that is the job in pre-production is to know what components are necessary to create the vision that the director has. So sometimes, like I said, sometimes the director will be very photographically minded and have a specific vision. Other times it will be much looser. And then it becomes your job as the cinematographer to say, this is how we can get the best images to fit whatever it is the story that we're telling. So okay. you, have to, you have to play that creative role. But then the creative role gives way to finding the team that can actually pull this off for you because you will not be setting up lights. You will not be playing with the camera on the day, at least at the level that I work at. You will not have to do any of that stuff on the day. What you will have to do is you will have to manage everyone to know, number one, how long all of those things are going to take. Uh, and from the technical side of things, you are, like I said before, in the film days, you were insurance, which meant anything goes wrong, they come to you. It's your problem that the film was... Uh, not properly exposed. Any any um, detrimental issue that arises from the image side of things is your problem. So you have to be across all of that. Now, are you interacting with that camera on set on the day? No. But if there's any issues with that, you have to be able to retrieve that information from the team as soon as you can and deal with it. You don't go to anybody else with that problem, which is different than every other role on set. Every other role on set, if there's an issue that they can't overcome, they get to go to you. They get to go to the director of photography and say, this is the issue. We can't overcome it. You need to come up with a solution. And then it's your job to come up with that solution. So if everything works, which is why, I mean, it's a, 
it's a fantastic job. Um, and it's 90% of the time, it looks like you're doing nothing on set, right? It looks like you're sitting around while everyone else is doing things. And uh, you might be sitting around, but you're thinking about the next setup. You're trying to maximize the efficiency of the crew because the faster you can get through a setup or the faster you can get through uh, a blocking or uh, whatever it might be, the faster you're able to do those things on set, they're always time poor. So the more you can squeeze out time for the director to be able to run more takes or for the talent to be able to do more takes, that's going to make the final product better. So it's really about looking around and trying to maximize efficiency. And the way that you maximize efficiency is by learning what needs to go up and down the chain of command. Like what information does the gaffer need to know that, uh, you know, the, the talent is going to come in crying because her boyfriend broke up with her? No. But does the gaffer need to know where the light has to go to give off the effect that you're looking for? Yes. So it's like, and if there's a problem in lighting, if there's someone that's sick, does that information need to be passed up the chain to the director? Probably not, right? They've got so much stuff on their mind. You have to be the shock absorber for, for the negativity on set mm -hmm. to be able to filter that and only allow them to be in a positive space, right? They've got lots of responsibilities. So the communication side of things is determining what is necessary to share with which person. And in sharing that information, is it going to make the, the film set more efficient? As in, are we going to be able to get more resources, more final resources in the frame than we would if we had not done whatever the behavior is that we're looking for? So it's a, it's a lot, way more. And even when I started, like years into my career, I think successful cinematography is, is so much more than on set. Right? It's so much more than uh, technicals. It's so much more than being able to frame a nice shot, right? That's how you get lucky. You, mm -hmm. If you can frame a nice shot, that's maybe, maybe you get lucky with a schedule. Maybe you get lucky with a location department. But really the work is, can you do that consistently over time, over a career? Because you know from experience that five jobs out of 10, you're going to get a terrible location and you're going to get a terrible schedule and you won't be able to change that sandbox, right? That'll be the, where you have to play. And the test is, can you make that look good? Like that's what I think is a great cinematographer. And it's the translation process between the director and, and also, like I say, filtering down through the crew and understanding what information is necessary and when and, and how that impacts every other link in the chain. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, like you talked about how there's uh, two sort of broadly different types of directors. There's the more technically photographically minded ones and um, maybe directors who are a bit more sort of less interested in that sort of thing. Um, and so you also talked about, um, the importance of, of communication and, you know, uh, uh, having a bit of social intelligence to be like, the director really doesn't need to, to know this, this information about the talent or, or, or whatever it might be. And so, um, what would you say, um, would you say that, um, from your perspective, it's beneficial for directors to be more of a people person or, or would you say that that's um, primarily a role, um, or a personality, uh, aspect that is more suited to directors of photography. I've seen it both ways in the commercial space. If you want to be working constantly, you have to be incredibly good at communication. Like you cannot be a director and be able to sell yourself time and time again. You could be some film savant, uh, and be able to produce the most amazing stuff. But if you can't sell anybody on your ideas and you can't make people dream the dream that you're dreaming. Uh, you're going to really struggle to be successful as a director. Um, that being said, the most successful directors that I have worked with have all been incredibly staunch in their views of how something's going to get done and what it means because they are really the only people 
that know every aspect and how it's going to come together. And you have to be able to, to fight for that because a lot of people think, at least I did from the outside early on, that the client and the agency and the production company, they hand over the reins to the director and they let you do whatever it is that you told them you were going to do. And it's, you know, everybody's on board and it's very supportive. Uh, it's an incredibly combative or can be combative uh, work environment, right? There are creative people on both sides of the aisle who are arguing back and forth as to how this thing is going to get done. And there's people inside of their own agencies that think, you know, uh, maybe we should do it another way. Like there's not complete buy-in all the time. So from a director standpoint, like they have to be, they have to be able to fight that off and to be able to block out the noise and to say, this is crucial to telling the story the way that I need to tell the story for it to be successful. And I need to be laser focused while at the same time, not pissing anybody off, not making people go crazy, not getting fired basically, and mm -hmm. not being shunned from the industry because it's one thing to work once. Um, it's another to work time and time again with the same people. It's, it's a, it can sometimes be an incredibly awkward working environment when uh, you have two opposing forces clashing on set uh, while you're making these things. So I think for directors in the commercial world, you have to be very good at communicating at all times in pre-production, in production, in post-production. And you have to, any commercial that you've ever seen that you thought, wow, that's great. That director, there, it, it, you don't just stumble into jobs like that. You don't stumble into those results. You look at like really skilled commercial directors, I would say at the top of that list, somebody like Mark Malloy, the, the consistency that they're able to get that work and have it be that impactful and that good, uh, it's just a huge, huge effort and so much time and so many meetings and so much talk about how he's going to get it done um, and the things that are necessary that if you really like films and you really like what you see and you think maybe you might be a director, uh, I would caution you to just follow somebody around <laughs> because it's a, it's a much different, much like cinematography is than I thought it was. Uh, commercial directing is, uh, yeah, it's a world that is, uh, that is very, very foreign to most people. You mentioned earlier that, um, sometimes you have to fight to, um, have the image be what, what you want it to be or what the director wants it to be. Um, so how do you resolve tension when there's opposing, um, views from yourself and the director? Like, let's say for example, the director's adamant that, um, front lighting, um, an entire commercial is the only way to go and they're, they're not happy with backlight at all. Um, and, mm. and that's the situation you're in. How do you handle that? Well, number one, I would say the director always wins. Like I'm there, I'm there as the director's number one person to help them create whatever they want. If they want to do it, uh, a certain way, well then I, I signed up for the job believing that that person could get it done and I need to support that. And I need to say, like, I always say I'm a yes man. Like any idea the director has, it's my job to be able to tell them how to do it. So if they want to make it look, if they want it to be front lit, I want to know why they want it to be front lit. I want to know what they like about that because that comes with a number of complications and those complications might, might not allow them to do uh, X, Y, or Z down the line, right? Like there might be some other uh, repercussion because they've chosen a certain style or a certain lens or a certain format. And it's my job to again, look ahead and see like, is what you're saying because you might not be as they might not be as technically savvy or uh, understand the gear components or the crew that is required or the time that it takes. So it's my job to buffer those things out if there's anything comes up. So immediately I would say, okay, well, what, what about that are we looking for? Like, what are we going for? Um, and why are we going for that? And if they say, and if they come up with a good reason, um, and I still think it's going to look bad, it's much like I talked about the sandbox analogy before. I will say, okay, um, this is the sandbox that you're creating. 
by doing this, this is what we're giving up. So if you are happy to give up those things, uh, I don't know, it, you know, if it's backlight, uh, it might be how fast we can move with backlight. Um, if it's some other technical, you just have to explain, okay, this is what we're giving up. I'm happy to do that. I'm going to do my best to make it look as good as I can. Um, but I offer alternatives, but with a the director, then I'm, I offer alternatives and then I am 100% behind whatever solution we come up with because they know at least much like I'm responsible for the images, they are responsible for the whole thing. And mm -hmm. if you have confrontations on set that, you know, it's a time poor place. You can't be, it's not like you're having 15 minute conversations there on the day of like, you know, this is how I feel we should do it. It's like that, that just doesn't happen on set that, that might happen beforehand, but when you're going for it, um, I am definitely a yes person to the director because it's their vision, right? They've done all the hard work to get everybody there. And that's why everyone is always happy to see them. All the crew members are happy because without that director, there is no work, right? Without that director, those people don't make a living. So everybody's trying the best that they can to understand what the vision is and then be able to bring that vision to life. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the crew, they get their enjoyment out of that, right? The challenge is understanding what the person wants and then being able to recreate that and being able to come up with it. That, that is the fun, uh, that, well, at least for me, that's part of the fun of the job is to collaborate with other people to hear their take on things and then to see, can we actually pull that off? Um, so I would say with the director, absolutely, yes. Explain the, explain the issues if you do have issues, but then once you get buy-in from a director, yes or no, then, then uh, moving forward in the best way that you can and, and communicating that with everybody around you. In terms of pushback from other people in the team or agency people, or oftentimes it will be, you know, there's like a, a little triad at the top of, you have the producer, the, the director, they have a relationship, the producer and the cinematographer have a relationship. And oftentimes, you know, you'll get a director that's very ambitious, that wants to do something quite big, uh, and they might not understand the technical uh, implications of those things, and that might increase the budget significantly. So oftentimes you'll, you'll be having direct discussions with the producer as to how to deal with this creative issue that the director has brought up. Um, so there are dynamics there. I would be, again, with the producer, I would always be on the side of the director. <laughs> uh, I would always be, this is how we can get it done. If we, if we don't have those resources, then we have to tell the director as soon as we can mm -hmm. so that we can come up with something different. Um, so every relationship is different on set. Um, but I, the, the same way that I want to be a filter for, because the director has so much going on, the producer has so much going on. Like you just, it's hard to fathom unless you're in the production office, seeing it, um, come to life, a commercial, it's hard to fathom how much work goes into those things before a director, uh, before DP is even on a job. So I liken it to, you know, you're just a cog in the wheel in the commercial space and the way that you can become the way that you can be valuable is by slotting into whatever that spot is in the cog, uh, in, in the gear as quick as you can and being as helpful and as useful as fast as you can. Um, so I would say just trying to take weight off of people and understand the responsibilities that they all have and the commitments that they've made. Um, you quickly realize that over time of just how, uh, you, you really don't want to be going into a situation and demanding things because you think, uh, you know, it might make your little 1% of the job that much better or that much easier. You really have to think through the entire project and say, okay, well, if I want X uh, piece of equipment, that means the budget goes up by that much. That's a problem for the producer, but maybe it's also a problem for every other department because now we're taking budget away from them. And uh, so it's, it's thinking through those details. And, and then with the crew themselves, like I don't want, I'm very explicit. I don't talk a lot uh, on set in person. I'm a very quiet, uh, shy person. I don't do you know, I, I would say I, I speak as little as possible and I pride myself on my efficiency speaking mm. on set, inter interrupting people doing their jobs. Um, 
but I don't want to hear from them either. Like I make it clear to the team around me. These are my expectations. If you can't meet the expectations, you, ha you need to let me know as soon as you can, and I'll come up with a different solution. Um, if you don't tell me those things, I don't want to hear about any of the minor issues that come up along the way. Like you have to filter to me as well, because I've got 10,000 other things that I'm thinking about. So yeah. I think it's being clear at the start. Well, it's like, I, I can't solve your problem if you don't tell me what the problem is. There's there's nothing I can do. I, I totally see that. You mentioned before, like, uh, if, if you have a disagreement with the director, um, let's say about some technical um, lighting uh, decision, um, such as like front lighting or, or something like that, um, that you think might not look as dramatic or, or as good. How do you how do you um, define a good reason in that context? So like, let's let's say that a director's uh, got a background as like a beauty photographer, they take a lot of um, photos for, for magazines and uh, things of that nature. And, and they're just involved with front lighting the whole time. And so they come mm. from that background where they just soft front light everything. And that is what is considered professional. And you say to them something like, um, well, look, this is what we do. And this is what my preference would be. And the reason that they give is, oh, well, that's not professional. And, and um, front light, soft front light is the only way to go for the entire thing. Uh, yeah, I would say um, I've never come up with that situation before where someone would say that. And I only think it's, it's really is, it might be like survivorship bias of the people that make it to the level where I'm at. They, they understand that, uh, much like I would do, I'm looking for the best, I'm looking to get the best people around me to help me as much as they can. And I'm going to take their advice as much as I can. Like with a gaffer, if I had some look that I've described and the lighting that I would do, I'm not going to tell the gaffer that this is the way that we have to do it. I'm going to say, you show me. If you want to do it a different way, you show me and you tell me the positives. Like, why is that better than the solution that I have offered up? Or normally I won't even offer up a solution. I'll just say, this is the look that we're going for. Um, what do you think? And then they'll describe the plan. I've never had a director tell me to do something that looked worse. Like they, they, they are pretty understanding that your job, you're the person who makes good looking images. So they don't have all of that knowledge. They come to you, they bring you on and they say, tell me how to make this look good. So it's like the relationship is usually, especially in the commercial space where, you know, you might talk to the person on the phone for half an hour and then you're on the scout with them. Like, you know, two weeks later, you're on the scout with them and then you're on the shoot with them and you, you've talked to them three times. It's like you, everyone has to be at a level of professionalism where they understand the roles. And by the time directors come to me at this level, they already know how to play this game of, well, everyone, everyone is actually trying to help me. So I should probably yes. at least listen <laughs> to, you know, maybe you get some pushback, like minor pushback issues. But uh, like I would, if they said this is how they want it, I'm saying, okay, like let's make it as awesome as we can um, because that's the whole job. So I, I wouldn't, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a, an example or a time where that has come up where I've been in that much disagreement with how to go about doing something. Because if there was that big of a disagreement, they, they've obviously... I don't know if they were saying that's the way that looks better. So, okay, if you think that's the way it looks better, um, let's do it. Let's try and make it as good as we can. And then if there are negative repercussions because of it, I would tell the producer, okay, it's going to take more time this way or we're not going to be able to operate the schedule the same way. Um, so as long as we know that, we're happy. The sandbox is built. Okay, let's play. Like that's the way that I would have, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I, I think by the time they get to me, they're already pretty good. You know, like I'm not, I, I don't really work with directors that, um, are inexperienced anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
Yeah, and I guess I guess you're in a situation where it's like, yeah, the the disagreement would probably come down to two sort of opposing worldviews about what constitutes a, a good image at the end of the day. And it's more like, well, if we've just got this fundamental disagreement about um, the components that go into a great looking image, then we're probably not you know, going to be well suited to, to working together anyway. Um, so it's probably best that I just turn that, that job down were it to hypothetically come up anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if I, even if I had a strong disagreement with like what I thought was going to make it look nice, it's, uh, it's not that kind of an work environment. Like you, you, he's the boss or the director's the boss. Like they got you the job. They hired you to come on the job. So you're not, at least me, I wouldn't tell somebody that their idea was terrible. Um, if it wasn't going to, like, I would tell them their idea is terrible or their idea wasn't going to work if they wanted to front light it, but they were sending references that were all backlit and say, okay, well, there's a problem here. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. But if they want to creatively do it, I mean, yeah. And even if I didn't like that look, like I'm not in the position to turn down those jobs, even if they came up again, even if somebody that had vastly different tastes than me. It's like, that's part of the reason why I like commercials. It's like you get to work with so many different directors. And there's, like I said, there's so many different ways of working and so many different styles of approaching how a 30 second ad gets done or how a minute long ad gets done. Then I find that's the enjoyable part to be able to discover how all these things are, are put together and the, the way that people like to work. So um, I would, even if I had a huge disagreement with someone, I would still uh, jump at the opportunity to work again, unless they were, you know, um, just not very nice. That's mm -hmm. a separate thing. Like you can, you can be really staunch in your views and want what you want. And most directors that, that are successful are like that, right? They have a vision. That's what you're paying for as a customer of those directors is you're paying for their vision. Um, but you can, you can communicate that in a nice way, not be a, a D bag about it. Um, or you can have terrible vision and communicate it in a terrible way. Um, those are the ones I'd probably look out for, but like creative disagreements, that that's the, that's the job. That's part of the course. You mentioned like, uh, creative disagreements and stuff like that. I imagine that becomes particularly frustrating based on what you've said in your, your own podcasts and your blog and stuff. The pushback when it comes is usually from the agency that's, that's funding the ad and it's someone coming in and going, hey, uh, Patrick, it's looking a bit, uh, looking a bit dark for me. Uh, can you, can you like turn up the, uh, the light on that one and mm. make it look more high key or something? And, and that is where there might be a clash between, you know, the director yourself and and the agency it's like well how do you work that out and so so i've heard stories um from a mutual friend of ours who's been on your uh, your podcast as well that there's situations where like dps and directors sort of conspire to let's say bake in a really crunchy lut into the footage or increase the ISO to like 2000 or something so that should the image be modified in post to fit the agency's quote unquote vision, it sort of disintegrates and tears to pieces whenever it's pushed. And so, yeah, I, I'm wondering if that's, <laughs> if that's an approach that you take or have taken or, or, or you know of anyone that's done that, you don't necessarily have to name them, but, but what do you think of that? Absolutely. Yes, that happens. And I would say uh, less so in my own position, though I'd happily do that. As I say, like in the way that I view the, the work is I'm hired, somebody got me the job, mm -hmm. right? And I am beholden to that person, whether that's a director, whether it's the producer, someone has gotten me the job. And you know, this is, this is life we're talking about. I want to get more jobs because I don't want to have to do something else. I like this job. I want to do more of these jobs. So I'm always 
thinking, how do I get more jobs? Is this going to be beneficial for me getting more jobs? Now, is burning a bridge at a local advertising agency because we want this thing to look a certain way uh, for what purpose? Um, I don't know, maybe just to, to make it look cooler. Uh, doing that in my position, probably not going to happen. Like there are so few opportunities here in where I work locally to have relationships with ad agency people. Like we would, I probably wouldn't conspire against those individuals. Now mm-hmm. on travel jobs where, where you hear this very often the most, uh, you'll be in a job. I don't know. You're in some foreign country. You're going to work with this agency and this production company one time in your life. Well, then you really are like, you have the freedom to be able to go, what? I think this is going to look better this way. So if the director wants it to look this way, they got me the job. They're going to move production companies in two years time. Like I could care less about everybody else. As long as the director's happy, I'm happy. So I'm going to make it look like that because I am preserving my, uh, the, the future opportunities for increased work. It's like, that's going to be the better financial decision. The better life decision is going to be able to, uh, help the one that got me the gig, right? Like I'm loyal in in that way. I don't have that opportunity here because it's such a small market. So it's, it's, it's market dependent, but absolutely that happens. And absolutely I would do it. It's like you, and again, depends on the job, but I have many times and it won't be, you know, it's not a secret. And I would tell the agency people that to their face that wow. if, okay. well, I mean, if you've hired people to do the job, um, if you want it a certain way, that's okay. Well, then you have to filter that through the person who tells me what to do. You, you don't come to me behind someone else's back and say, well, I want it to be brighter. On set now, if they see, if they're looking at the image, right? Like this is a, you got to remember, this is a, it's a professional working environment. Everyone is very nice. Like if you're a dickhead, you get weeded out pretty quick at any level, whether you're creative, whether you're an agency or client, like people don't like dickheads. 100%. So those people will be weeded out. So you have to imagine if somebody comes up to me, um, well, number one, they probably wouldn't come up to me, the agency people. Um, if they come up to the, to the producer or if they come up to the first AD or someone and they say, oh, it's looking a little bit dark. Usually they'll tell the director and the director will come and say, they think it's looking a little bit dark. Do you feel that way? And I would say no. Or I would say yes. Or I would say, well, okay, do they want it fixed? Like, do they, is it that big of an issue? And if it's yes, well, then I fix it. <laughs> like, I, I, it's not, uh, I think there's, there's much less creative pushback than I originally either thought at the beginning of my career um, or I've gotten better as a cinematographer. One of those two is true because I thought it was more of an issue. Uh, that, that's a thing of the past now. Like, very rarely. I can't think of a time where I've had feedback from the agency of like, we don't like this, mm-hmm. like fixed. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get that. Um, so either I'm getting better at setting expectations, which surely is the case. I have to be doing that because I, I, I actively try to get better at that. Yeah. But then also like, maybe it's just a sign of the times that that no longer happens where they don't feel comfortable doing that anymore. Hmm. But it usually, if there is creative differences, it comes from the director and that's why I want telling me what they do and don't like. You know, like I, I wouldn't want them not saying something is bad. In fact, the, the best directors that I've worked with on set, I've lit an entire scene and they've gone, this is, this is average. Like you could do better than this. I'm going, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's make it better. Like, what do we want different? Because Mm. this is what I've come up with. And then they say it. And then you say, you can either, you know, be heard about it or you can get the job done. (laughs) You know, you can just do what they say. Um, and figure out how to come up with that solution. But it, I'm, it's not like I'm sitting there on set going, this is the way that I see it. So we have to do it this way. And I'm going to undermine everything to not do it this way. I could see where I could do that, but it wouldn't be very smart. You know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a great move on my part. 
um, to do that in my in my unique situation. So um, I see both sides of it. And yeah. actually, sorry, sorry, just to break there. Uh, I just got a message that uh, oh. my 1230s off. So um, I'm happy to keep going. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's that's um, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm like, there's more stuff that I want to talk to you about. You were you were saying something about the relationship with the the director of the agency and where you're you're sort of in a, a zone i guess of of work where you're having less uh disagreements with agents and stuff like that and and i guess it's partly a respect thing as well combined with a sort of humility in the sense of like if i genuinely do think that the director's vision is better and i have something to learn from them then you, you know i'm happy to make the compromise and you know tell me more tell me more tell me how i can improve sort of thing and and that's that's sort of an attitude that really attracted me to your podcast is you sort of had this thing of like even when you interview other cinematographers it's like yeah look if there's something i don't know like like tell me it can only make my work work better like it can't make it worse and so so that's that's something that's that's really cool and i think that agencies as well probably see the the same tendency and you know they're aware that you're you're shooting you know all the ads in perth basically um and so they're like well you know he obviously knows what he's doing so so we should you know unless we have have other a reason otherwise we should uh we should believe that that he knows uh you know the the best decisions to make for the the benefit of the frame in that sense yeah i I would say definitely the experience is part of it and getting better like i said earlier about setting expectations but then also it's it's very easy to sit here in the the cool calm um, environment of not being on set and forget all of the chaos that is on set for everyone that is not you like the director in a, in a fairy tale land, maybe, and maybe this happen, happens on Sunset somewhere, where the director is sitting around, like, examining everything that's happening and keeping on track of everything. But imagine getting pulled in 500 different directions by the seven heads of the department, all asking 100 questions. The volume of information that they have to compute is too much, so they're not doing that. They go away when when they say cut. Okay, we're moving on to the next scene. They come back when the schedule says we're done with lighting. Right, and they come back. There's not like a back and forth. There's a trust that they go away and they answer the five thousand other questions that they have to. The same with the client, and the same with the agency. Like they're doing so many other things on set that have nothing to do with the images, because they've hired you to do the images. So they come back, and if it looks nice, guess what? You you don't have time. There's not like every single setup. There's going to be feedback on how you've lit it. Like I think I well I know, for the early part of my career, I thought that people everybody cared. I thought that everyone was going to be examining these things as closely as I was. And that it's, it's just simply not the case. Like you, you, you cannot devote that much attention to something as small as the images on a commercial from all of those individuals. It's just, it, there's too much. So well, yeah. To- yeah. Like at, at that point, it just becomes like a cognitive limitation. And, and so that's as, about as biologically, uh, as biological as you can get. It's like they, they physically can't, um, dedicate the, the level of attention you can to, to what a frame looks like. Absolutely. Which then is also a reminder to you to not worry about all of that other stuff that is happening because your value is in taking over the load that they cannot carry right? It's like you you should be looking out for those things, which they cannot see. And then when you're presenting, again, like, you're not really, especially as you get more and more comfortable with directors, you're not really selling an image to a director, but you are like, you present it like, okay, we're ready to shoot. Like, this is what I have offered up in the time that we have 
this is what the translation that you have gone from the treatment to the conversations we've had, like, ta-da, like, this is it. Mm -hmm. In that time, maybe there is feedback. Like I said, sometimes I've had people say, like, this is not it. Like, we have to stop, tools down, do better. I've, I've had that, but that is, you know, that's one in a hundred. Uh, the other times, everyone's like, okay, like, are you happy? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm happy. And they go, okay, let's roll. Like, there is, there is um, smart people who are successful at this job do so by leaning into the experts. It's like, if I have an, a, a fantastic gaffer, I'm not going to question him bringing out a certain lamp or a certain piece of diffusion when he's in the middle of doing that. Like, show me the final result. If it's good, guess what? Like, I'm not going to talk to you all day, <laughs> which is exactly the way that I want it. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be lighting. If I wanted to be lighting, I'd be the gaffer. I want to be doing all of these other things. So I'm looking for the least amount of interaction that we can possibly have on set and still get the images that I have in my head. And the closer we can get the final images to the images that we have in my head, my job is to come up with really cool images in my head. If I can do that time and time again, and I can communicate with the team around me to get those images, we're in a pretty good spot, right? Because nobody else is doing that job. Nobody else is coming up with the images in their head except me. So that's mm -hmm. the value that I bring is that. Like exactly. actually doing it. I don't want to hear, yeah, you know, yeah, I don't want to be um, talking about laying the track or the kind of dolly that we're getting. It's like, get the dolly that we need to get the job done. It's pretty simple. Yeah, it's like my 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 money is on um, whatever gets us the best image, so do that. Yes, and that means, so it's in my best interest to find the best people to do those jobs. So part of the job on set is like, okay, what are we, what are we giving the gaffer here on a score of one to 10 on this setup? Last time, or in my mind, I projected it would take 30 minutes. They asked for an hour, and it's taken an hour and 10 minutes. Like... That's noted. Like, now we have an issue. Next job, I'm going to be looking elsewhere because it should have taken 30 minutes, right? I'm going to have a conversation with that person. Listen, we've gone over that much. Uh, the results were suboptimal. Like, where did we go wrong? Is this a me thing? Is it a you thing? Is it an equipment thing? Was it a conversation? Like, I'm going to have all those awkward conversations. I'm not going to do it on set on the day, but I'm going to have those conversations with people, and I want the best team around me where I do the least amount of work. Right? I want the maximum juice out of the squeeze. So the way that you get that is you get really good people around you. And the same works for the director. And the same works for the producer. Like if you think about jobs from a producer standpoint, um, and you're in this business long enough, it's really easy to see crew members and heads of department that producers will lean on time and time again because they're reliable. They get the job done. They do it in a speedy fashion. Uh, basically, they can do the job without you ever having to worry about them. So that's what I want to aspire to is to be that person in the list where they say, okay, um, we got a job, we're going to get somebody to shoot the thing, who do we get that requires the least amount of work from us, and we still get a great product? Patrick. Okay, I'll call Patrick. And then he's going to take care of everything else, so that I don't have to be involved, I can, uh, you know, completely remove my mind from the images, because Patrick has it covered. I want that same thing with every crew member. It's like, I know, in town, I know the first AC that I will call, and I never have to think about anything again. Guess who I'm going to call every time? I'm going to call that person. I don't want to have to call the person. I'm going to have to be there for, uh, you know, the build. And I'm going to have to see that they've set all the camera settings right. Like, that's that's an incredible waste of resource from my end. Yep. Like, I want to just hand the ball off to somebody who's really good and never think about it again. And if there's a problem with the camera or the technical side of things or the video village is having issues, like, I don't solve it. Mm. And then come yeah, yeah. Because that, that makes me better, right? And that makes yep. the whole thing better. And if we can all do our little part where you, you start to see... Once you have those elements in place, 
and a job comes off and you're like, man, that was so easy. And it looks really good. It's like, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Like the, we're getting better every time we go out with this team. And that's when you start to lean into it and start to see these things. And uh, yeah, where I used to be incredibly like, I wouldn't micromanage people, but I would just, I would be very extreme in trying to be across everything. Now mm. I, I trust in the, in my experience to say, we've gotten the right people. Um, come to me if there's an issue. I can see how that would work in the sense of coming out of the one man band to working with a crew or something like that. You might have like a specific sort of camera setup that works really well for you. And you couldn't sort of understand like how any other AC would sort of operate with that. But, but maybe their idea of an optimal setup is, is slightly different to yours. And so at, at that point, it's like, well, you know, whatever allows you to do your job in the easiest possible way that requires the least possible communication from me, then, then go and do that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Across every crew member. And it takes a, you know, it takes a while to, to see the impact that those little variations can make, but you do it long enough. And that's one of those things you can't really, I mean, we can talk about it even on the podcast that I do. It's like, I'm, I'm, lo I'm constantly looking for those things, but you, it's, you just develop it over time that one little 1% increase in efficiency like in actual in the actual setup or in the way that the uh the grip parks their truck like you start to realize man i can get more out of it if i'm involved in the conversation about parking like yeah. i can get i can get better images if i look out for any red flags in the parking diagram yep. it's like that's when you get pretty deep into <laughs> into understanding issues that are not just in front of the camera right yeah. it's like there's so many more elements and i want i basically when i think about it when i think about pre-production i think about how can I set the stage so that everyone can do their best? Like, because I'm looking after a team and that team doesn't communicate with the production. I communicate with the production and that team uses me to do that. But why don't I just anticipate all of their needs and make sure that they like, it's almost like raising a child. Like you just, you set up the environment for them to be able to succeed um, with the least amount of friction. And yes. so just constantly looking to remove friction is a benefit. And that's where I think you can, at least in my experience, you can make the most impact on the final image. Yeah, it reminds me of a concept that I, I think I, I think you might have discussed it before that podcast, actually. But the podcast that you did with Elliot, who's, who's a friend of mine, and you mentioned the signal to noise ratio. You want to keep that as optimal as you can. Describe to me and our listeners what exactly the signal to noise ratio is, from my understanding. That is where you want to rate the ISO of the camera so that it produces the least amount of grain or, or noise possible in relation to the image. Tell me about how that applies to communication on set. When I think of signal to noise, the immediate example that comes to mind in a communication sort of aspect is like I've noticed we're both members on the Mid Journey Discord. And so in the experimentation that I've done with Mid Journey, it's much more optimal to keep the descriptions of what you're looking for as brief and as concise as possible. And so tell me a bit about that and how you apply that on set. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is as simple as understanding what information is in the first place, right? Like actually the fundamental idea of information and people think information is, at least in the way that we use it now, is like the meaning of something when you can think of information as the physical embodiment of order itself. It's like you are communicating um, information to an individual the more information that you put there that is superfluous to the action that you want, that becomes 
friction in the way of getting the action done that you require? Like, why are you passing on the information in the first place? What are you actually doing? What's the end goal of all of those things? The more noise that you put into whatever information that you're passing on, uh, the more resources have to be dedicated to the computation of that information to try and figure out what is going on. Like, what is the end goal that the person on the receiving end is actually looking to decipher from that message? It's like, that is... That is the problem as you fluff on, especially in a time poor environment, as you fluff on about whatever it is that you are looking for, oftentimes you'll hear about this from crew members who slightly less experienced cinematographers will, um, they'll talk about things that don't actually move the needle. Like I'm only looking to uh, have discussions on set that will move the needle in the direction that I want it to go. Uh, I don't need to, because I know that we're resource poor on set. So every interaction or every path that I lead you down that isn't going to get us closer to the final image that's in my head is a detriment to the final image. It's like, we only have so much time. We only have so many uh, people on set that can move things. So it's like, I need to be as clear as I can because if I'm not as clear as I can, then we're wasting resources. So my job, or the way that I can become really good at my job is to figure out exactly what I want, know how to get that done, and then know how to communicate at what point in the timeline I need to pass on that information and to who I need to pass it on to because, again, like I, the, the example that I always use is the, you know, the, the gaffer doesn't need to know why the color of the wall is a certain color. It's like they need to know uh, how to light it to fit the image that's in, the, in my head. So I need to pass on, this is what we're trying to convey. You tell me how you're going to get it done. If you don't know how to get it done, I will tell you how we can get it done. Yes. Like yes. I'm always that backstop of if you don't have any ideas, like how to technically overcome something, I can cook up something in my head. Now, is that going to be the best? Probably not for the gaffer. Probably not for the grip, right? I'm probably going to make it way more complicated because I don't have that expertise. I don't have the nuanced expertise that those individuals do. But if I say, we need this big, giant overhead light, it's got to be super soft. Uh, I could rig it. I mean, I can come up with a way in my own head to rig it. Or you can come up with a way that's probably 10 times better and faster and more efficient. So I'm not going to fluff on about how exactly I would rig the thing. I'm going to open the floor to the expert and say, uh, this is what I'm looking for. Like, you tell me. And then if it's a terrible idea, then I redirect them as fast as I can. But on set, those conversations with crew members, uh, and also like in the conversations with the director, I'm looking to not add anything unnecessary. And it's almost become a game now for, for me on set as to how little can I say and achieve the images that I want. Because if I, if I don't have to do anything, that means I've done my job way better than I was doing it before <laughs> because it required all of this extra communication that's superfluous to the end result. So it's almost like a way to gauge my own uh, competency moving forward is how little do I have to do? Because if I don't do much, that means I've done my job really well. Yeah, well, it almost seems like a, a good idea just generally to manage stress and the stresses that come up on set because like as, as you and I both know, you know, you might have a plan in pre-production and then, you know, something terrible happens on the on the day and, you know, you've got bad weather or, you know, crying talent who's just broken up with her boyfriend and, and disaster strikes. And, and so it's like, well, at that point, like you need to have a methodology for minimizing, you know, any any unnecessary complications. Absolutely. And and that's part of the reason why, I mean, on, on my own podcast, in my own career, I have developed a framework for images that I like, which means I have a reliable pattern to get images that I like. And a lot of people think that when they hear that, oh, okay, so that's, you are constantly relying on that and using that yes. so, that, <laughs> so that you can get those images so you don't have to think anymore on set that you can just uh, default to that. It's an algorithm, and that, yeah. Exactly. That, the way that I think about it 
is if I know those things, that allows me to be more present on set to deal with the, the myriad of other issues that come up, which is where, what really moves the needle that last 1%, right? Those conversations that you have, those split second decisions that you have, if everything else is taken care of, like the broad, you know, 80-20 principle, if you have that 80% taken care of, well, now it's like my computational capacity increases because I no longer have to worry about that. I know my default there is do X. If we have problem Y, do X. Okay, I don't have to think about that anymore. Now I can think about what are the little tiny minor details that will come up? What are the, what conversations do I have to have now to look ahead three shots that's going to make that shot easier? Or what can we do? Because, you know, you're always, it's, it's always a battle on set. It doesn't matter what level that you're working at. Um, you're always going to be pressed in resources or time or whatever it is. And the more that you can be open and anticipate those, like I said before, those, those future problems, uh, the more of a benefit it's going to be. So I see that framework as it just takes a huge mental chunk off of my shoulders and allows me to do other things, which in turn makes the images better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's, that's great. I wanted to ask you about the framework. So I know that you've got a course that you sell on it. So I'm not expecting you to go into, you know, laborious detail and tell me, you know, each step of the framework and how it works and, and all that. But could you perhaps give our listeners and myself a, a bullet point sort of list as to um, what the framework is and, and how we can apply that and, and how it works and what, what is involved in, in each step in a, in a sort of broad sense? Yeah, well, I'll say this. When I went away and um, was trying to figure out images that I liked, I, I'm, just, I'm a systems type person in life in general. Like, I, again, I want to make things as friction-free and as easy on myself as I possibly can. And if I have to do an action a uh, hundred times uh, on the second time, I want to make sure that I'm doing it right. So the next, you know, the next 98 times, um, I'm not wasting resources on it. So that the, the idea of the framework came from, I don't know what images I like. I don't know what I'm naturally drawn to. I'm just going to watch everything that I, I want to ingest as much content as I possibly can. And I will start to develop things that I like. And as I develop things that I like, I'll start to group them together. And then I'll see if there's any shared characteristics, any common characteristics between those things. And over time, what I noticed is that images that I thought would be significantly um, different in their approach, in their lighting, in their framing, uh, it turned out that they were all the same. And it didn't matter location. It didn't matter time of day. It didn't matter uh, mood. All of these things were, there were some common characters amongst them all. And a lot of it has to do with creating contrast and controlling light. That is the, the main uh, elements of the framework. And you find that there's repeatable patterns in everything that I like. And one of them, probably the biggest one, which you can instantly make images significantly more, oh, the word I would be, I would say attractive to me. So something that is more compelling to me is if you have a subject that you are um, lighting, if you can put the light on the far side of the subject, which means further away from the camera than the subject is. So if you are looking into the shadow that is created by the light that you are lighting someone with, that is by default, I, I already know in my head, it doesn't matter what the situation is, that is going to create a much rounder three-dimensional image. It's going to appear as though there's more depth in the image than doing the opposite. So by default, if we can always think, because in filmmaking, you know, there's a 180 degree line that happens in any scene. And a lot of the times it's like, well, do you cross that line? There are issues there. But the 180 degree line, I know if I'm on the shadow side of the 180 degree line, I know that I'm going to be better than if I wasn't. So default, let's be better because I already know I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to have to overcome near as many obstacles and it's going to look better for zero extra 
resources, right? Like I'm already winning there. So that's one of the elements of the framework is in my mind, I would never go into a situation and be like, well, let's just default go on the light side of the line. I would always default to the shadow side. If there's a reason why we should be on the light side, okay, well then um, I need to hear it out and we need to accommodate it. But if, we're, if there's not, I'm gonna default to that side. So it's like that immediately creates depth in the image and depth in the image is what we're going for. The images that I really like, there's more depth. And what I mean by that is there is more elements in the frame that make it a two-dimensional space appear three-dimensional, right? That's yes. what we're going, that's what I like. That's what I'm drawn to. I want contrast, I want light and dark, as much light and as much dark as I can possibly get. I find after viewing hundreds of thousands of images, that is what I'm naturally drawn to. So I'm gonna do that by default because I know the alternative is not as compelling. So that's one example. And there are a number of different things that add up that make the job significantly easier. Each one sort of less impactful than the first, but they all add up to a framework. They all add up to a decision making tree that I can repeatedly rely on to know that no matter where I am, no matter what set I'm on, no matter what location I'm in, no matter what time of day it is, if I knock out five of those elements, um, I'm going to be pretty happy or happier than I could have been with any other decision um, up until that point. So it is really just taking uh, resources and redirecting them so I no longer have to think about because I've spent so much time beforehand showing that that is the way that that's the way that I can at least lay a foundation for images that I'm going to be happy with. So from an image creation standpoint, we might say that the core of this framework of yours is to create as much visual depth as possible. And how do we achieve that? Well, we achieve it by shooting into the shadow or shooting so that the light is, let's say, behind the subject or off to the side or something like that. Absolutely. And the thing about it is because I didn't know anything, uh, this was all counterintuitive. Like I, I didn't, I didn't realize any of this and it's not like naturally instilled in anyone. You, this is something that you have to learn how to do. And you can either explicitly learn how to do it as in to say, I'm going to memorize these five points that will make it that easy. Or you're going to do it through experience. It's like, you don't find a, a, uh, at least the cinematographers that I like and that I respect the, the work that they do. Everyone follows these same principles. Now they may not know that they are doing this. And I would, I would say that the vast majority don't do it this way. Um, but those are better cinematographers than me. Like they, really? they've come up, they've either had more experience or they have, uh, their natural instinct is to just think this way, but they don't think in these systems that I know for sure. So like, uh, Roger Deakins, for example, you don't think he's consciously thinking, um, I want to shoot into the shadow, into the L of the room and all of that sort of stuff to, uh, create depth. You, you sort of, um, think that his approach is more like this looks good i'll shoot it this way absolutely yeah really I, yeah i would say that 100 and it's actually funny there's somebody in the patreon group for the podcast that right. posted uh i forget the cinematographer's name but he was the gentleman that shot tar right i do breakdowns of other people's work because that's how i decipher myself how i could do some of the things that i see i just think how i would reverse engineer a shot so I do that for Patreon supporters of the show as like an add-on bonus to individuals for supporting the show. And then I release those as videos. Someone inside the group shared um, and then recorded the reaction of the cinematographer. Fantastic person. I can't remember his name, but Tar is a beautiful looking film. It's fantastic. Right, right. And I'm reversing, uh, he's watching a video of me reverse engineering it. And he says in the clip, I would never think of it that way. But that's, that's so exactly funny. what I'm doing. Yes. <laughs> so you, you don't have to think of it like this. I just think if you don't think of it like this, 
it is more work. It's almost like a map to navigate into what gets you a good image. Well, this, because this is what everyone does. Whether or not they think about it, like it, it almost does make sense to me in a way that they, they sort of maybe just accidentally figured it out and, and they just like that sort of imagery. I can, I guess, understand it in my own work in the sense of like I've found anecdotally from my own experience that things just look better when you backlight. Like it just looks better yeah. and and front light doesn't look as as nice to me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes like you can like you say, you can either discover that on your own or you can just look at the results that someone has said and, and take it on board. There's one that's a much gets you there much faster. And that has been sort of the if I could say the 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 industry as a whole and cinematographers have, have always been supportive of the podcast and, you know, they take their time to come on the show and, and I couldn't do it without the participation of other people. Um, but the one pushback that has come is that there is a, uh, from people that don't understand the goal of the framework, there is a pushback on on making it almost like paint by numbers, yeah, which it is. A, it's a crutch thing that, that you just yeah. fall into and that's all you do and that's all you can think about and that's 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 the only thing you do, sure. Exactly. And th that is the pushback uh, is that, yes, the, you, you, you can sort of turn off your brain and just get those results. Mm -hmm. But once you do, once you fully understand it and you start to see that's when you can start to break the rules, right? That's when you can start to say, this is why I don't want to do the shadow side. Like now you're making informed decisions because you know what the results are going to be. Basically, as I've said this whole time, you can see into the future. You know what the result of your lighting choice is going to be. If you don't want that, choose the other thing, right? You have this path where now, not only do I know the one side, I know the one side of the equation. I know exactly what the shadow side is going to look like. I know all of the pros and why I would do that. If I need to shoot the other way, I also, by default, know what that is going to give because it's going to be the opposite of what I wanted in the first place. So if I ever need the opposite, I already have the solution, right? So it's an element where you could, you still make those decisions. It just makes them, at least for my own work, it, it expresses things that much quicker, um, which I have found allows me to do uh, more both on set and in pre-production. So it, it can be, certainly can be a crutch. And I've probably, you know, as information has become easier to access, uh, certainly more people have gotten better looking images than they should have using the framework, right? People um, that have sent me things, people that I know that have listened to the podcast for a long time have upped their their skills from an outside perspective faster than they should have or faster than they would have without that information. Um, is that is that cheating though? Or is that just now we no longer, as a community, we no longer have to suffer the years that I spent analyzing this stuff. Like not everyone should have to do that. I've already done it. Now just take this information and you build on it. You know, like the, the way that we progress uh, in our ability to transform information is that we build on what other people have done before us. It's like um, we, we sort of now understand the system behind what makes a good image. Whereas before maybe it was a bit mis like, well, no, it definitely was mysterious because you know, I remember watching movies and I would have no idea about the framework, but I, I'd be be able to sort of maybe think like, oh, this this shot looks better than this one. Not sure why. And and maybe like, like you said, it's less of a cinematographer's gatekeeping their, their secrets. And it's more just like, well, they just they just thought that that's what looked good and they don't know how to explain why. But but it just looks good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of it almost in a way that it's like. If that information isn't available, like I, I would have preferred someone just told me the five things that form the foundation of the images that I like rather than spending the years that I did. <laughs> like that would have jumpstarted my career. I could have done way better stuff way earlier. 
So if other people can take that information and do way better stuff earlier, guess what's going to happen? Which we have seen, I have personally seen with the podcast, is people who started out that were not very good at cinematography and have reached out to me and said, hey, Patrick, I just want to understand this. Like, uh, now they're way better than I am. Like, they are better at making all of the other decisions outside of the framework. Um, and they come back and tell me solutions. Like, they give, they make me better. So it becomes like a flywheel of uh, everyone realizing that there are steps that are repeatable. And the more we share those decision-making trees, the more everyone can get, the, the better everyone can get. And there is so much work available around the world that there, it isn't like a, um, the, the pool, you're, you're not competing with each other all of the time. So if we can all make our images better, it's in everyone's best interest to share as much information as possible. So it has, in that sense, it has developed a community of people that are, that understand the benefit of not having to do everything on your own. Right? And I like, guess, I, I guess kudos to you for actually, uh, well, firstly, for coming up with the framework, or, or maybe not even coming up with it, but I guess systematizing it and and documenting it, um, and then and then also making that publicly available because it's like you were in a very unique position where you could have just created this thing and and pumped out these consistently great images and just kept it to yourself and and you know there there would have been theoretically no no financial. Um, benefit to to making it publicly available for for people to learn from, um, but instead you chose to sort of make it um, make it available online and start this podcast, and and it's actually been beneficial to you as a cinematographer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could I wish I could say that I thought of that at the beginning, uh, but the the, the podcast. Um, I think as you mentioned before we started recording here, like the the point of my podcast was just if I am. If I know that I'm going to talk about these jobs publicly, well, then I want to I want to know what I'm talking about, and I want to learn. I'm basically I want to document my learning, um, because there will be other people like me out there somewhere that are trying to learn this stuff as well. And if I'm asking people to come on the show and share with me their own secrets or their own way of working, then it would probably be valuable for me to do the same. So uh, I didn't come out the gate of having the framework. Like it took years of stumbling through the dark of being like, oh, I like this one element. And then talking about it and realizing, wait, this applies all of the time. And then, uh, you know, 12 months go by and there's another element that is added in. So it wasn't like a plan to say, I'm going to share this with the world. It was documenting my own struggles to match up the images that I was getting with the images in my head and realizing, wait a sec, there are these, these core elements that, that continue to pop up. So it wasn't uh, entirely like I'm going to gift this to the community. It was just that's the way that I ended up stumbling into it. And, uh, you know, we're, we live in a unique time where I can share this stuff um, once recorded and it can and, and and thousands and thousands of people can listen each week around the world uh it's it's pretty amazing yeah yeah it is amazing you mentioned just then um that you've had people come on who you know started listening to your stuff and then very quickly became as good or, or perhaps better than you are at, at uh shooting and and um applying the framework what is an example of something where someone's maybe come on the podcast or even like privately said, Hey man, like this is, this is what I did on, on set the other day. And, uh, it broke the framework, but, but look how good it looks. And is there a, like a moment that you've had like, wow, like, wow, I can really see how breaking the framework in that specific instance makes a lot of sense and actually improved the image rather than made it worse. Yeah. Yes. But those conversations happen in ways that are unique to those situations. So I don't think anyone has ever told me like, Oh, this is the element that you're missing that like if you just repeatedly do this all the time this is going to make the framework better but i think the the conversation is uh i 
I learned to light. Like, I don't know. I've, I've had a lot of people uh, just tell me from the show, like, I, thank you. I've learned to light from the videos that you, or from the podcast that you put out. Um, I, I haven't said them say, this is how you improve the framework, but I have said this in this particular instance, this is what I did. I went with this style of solution um, with these results. What do you think? And I will look at the thing and say, this is actually whatever they've done to break the framework is actually better. And it's, and I can, I can think in my head, it's provably better given the situation they just described. So it's like, it's giving them, like I said, the foundation, it's giving you the foundation, um, and a reliable pattern that is not going to be broken or disappointed. And when you break it, you do so for a very specific reason. And it's like having those conversations about why you would break them makes me a better cinematographer because I know now, like I always say, it's like being a cinematographer, you're just accumulating little tricks, like little solutions to any situation that could come up, right? Much like a translator. You're like, oh, that word only comes up uh, once every hundred projects. But when it comes up, if I have the exact like card that I can play, well, then it makes the set better. It makes the final images better. And I want to accumulate as many of those things as I can. So the, the value from conversations like that with cinematographers who have seen the framework, learned to light that way, and then come back to me with, a, hey, this is my latest thing. And I see that it doesn't quite follow the framework. Or I see that they've done something different. That's an input for me to make my own cinematography better because I can see, oh, I see what you did there. Like I see how you've done uh, that level slightly different or that roundness slightly different or you've edged a light in slightly different. Now I'm going to take that and I'm going to steal it. I don't even need to have a conversation with you. You just show me the results. Exactly. And I know if, you, if you're operating from that foundation, then I know what you, you would have been thinking and why you might have uh, differed in your approach on the day. And I just logged those results. It's like, it's, it's not that much work. Once you memorize this stuff to the point that I have, where it's, it's become second nature. Like I couldn't even name the, without really thinking about it, I couldn't even name the framework, like the components of it. I just know in my head, like I could, if I went back to the list that I've made for these are the exact things, but it, I've just, it's internalized now. It's like, I just know those things. Um, whereas other people, as they're learning, they, they really lock onto it and then they forget about it, but it's just become internalized. And then they develop solutions for specific shots, whether it's I don't know, car shots or how you're going to do a silhouette. Like if you're going to do a silhouette shot, like a Roger Deakins looking thing, you're not going to use the framework. You might use one element of it, but you need to know, okay, when I want to do that trick, I have to eliminate the four other things. Um, so it's, it's more a process of elimination than it is about um, adding to the framework. Could you give me some specific examples of shots that might be in uh, some recent movies that I can show our listeners on the, on the screen? where they've broken an element of the framework in a really obvious um, sort of way and, and why they work. The one film that I have seen that is from a cinematographer who is as skilled as you can possibly be um, and who has done a movie which breaks pretty much every rule, not rule, every uh, piece of the framework, um, and that's Saltburn by Linus, you know, uh, Linus, uh, what's his last name? Sandgren? Sandgren? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you look at Saltburn and... Maybe one out of the five or six elements is in every shot, but none of it follows any of the patterns. Wow. And without having those conversations, I mean, you know, well, at least I know, I know just from looking at those images, looking, knowing Linus' experience and his past results, I know that each element of the frame is a choice. Like it, it just, it's not a student film that is just like, oh, well, we had the location at this time, so we're forced to make it look like this. It's like, no, if it's front lit, he chose and the production chose to make it front lit. So you are actively choosing to get that end result. And there is nothing about it that lines up with any of the things that I normally like. Uh, but it's a look. 
right? Like it's its own thing that they have chosen to do for that specific project. And you have to say it's as well done as you could have done that specific look. Like you can still see the craft is there. The technical mastery is there. Yeah. It's just yeah. you get vastly different results, which is why I like looking at those things so much because mm. that only reinforces like, oh, I, I might not be as drawn to those images naturally without even understanding the story. You know, if you just looked at a couple of different frames, it looks a little bit, um, it's combative in its framing. It's, it just is a little bit less comfortable. It's a little bit less uh, easy on the eyes. Now you can do that by accident, but Linus is certainly not doing that by accident, right? There, mm. there is a choice, which then leads to like, that is the benefit of this system in the first place, because now he's actively making a choice as opposed to just accepting Oh, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to schedule any time for this daytime exterior and we're going to get what we get. It's sure, like, yeah. well, that's not, yeah, that's not how you get images that are close in your mind uh, on the day, right? You have to actively plan for these things. So I would say if you want to see something that is not, that doesn't follow any of those rules, uh, you look at the people operating at the highest level and they are actively breaking those things. Um, like, I don't know, again, like Achivo, you look at some Achivo's work, uh, his work on uh, Meet Joe Black. I don't know if you've seen the movie Meet Joe Black. No, I haven't, I haven't seen that one, actually. If you watch it, it is the most... I mean, it is one of the films where I was like, this is it's beautiful cinematography of a really basic... There's no superheroes. There's no VFX. It's a story just like a normal uh, drama, right? Mm. But it's so perfectly controlled. And you look at all the images, and you're like, ah. I mean, you nailed every... He nailed every bit of the framework, every single shot, in every single setup. It's amazing how... Um, how perfectly it is done. And then he, a couple films later, you know, you go on a couple of, uh, a decade down the line, you do Revenant. And it's like, it, that doesn't have anything to do with it. It's completely different. You, he obviously has the skills to do that. He's chosen not to. And the, the important point there is he has chosen not to do that. Like mm. he has actually made, it's almost like uh, the evolution of Picasso, right? You look at Picasso, he's doing amazing uh, photorealistic stuff. And then he's uh, transferring further and further away from that. He can still do it. He's choosing not to do it. Yes, and it's, that's, in, it's that's all intentional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, intention. Even even with the Revenant, when you mentioned that, I was sort of like, hmm, like that seems like a movie. Like, and it's it's been probably about five years since I've I've watched it. It seems in my mind like, oh, that'd be a go-to for like frameworky sort of shots. But then I sort of think about it again, and I'm like, well, what was the concept of the movie? Well, it's meant to feel as real as possible. And so maybe there's benefits to breaking some of those rules and making it just feel a little bit more raw and visceral. And 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 that works perfectly for the storytelling. Absolutely. And you, you touched on a key point there, which is uh, someone, Chiva, reading that, realizing that, and then actively making the choice. That is what you feel in those final images, as opposed to getting there and being like, hmm, how do we make this look, uh, you know, quote unquote, better or nicer? It's like, no, that's you get so familiar with how to create images and the end result of those images, which is the whole point, right? The whole point is the end result. What is the feeling that it gives off? Uh, that is where the mastery comes in. And that's who if you think of yourself as a director who has this project and you go to someone, do you want someone that knows how to... Uh, you know, put the light stand up and set the light at the right thing and be able to plug in the cables. It's like, none of that matters. It's like, can you help me make my story more compelling or more interesting or more impactful? Like, that's the person that I want next to me. I don't want to hear about all the details. I want you to, to take your mastery and make it that much better. And I think that's what Chivo brings to those projects is they're like, I, you would want someone who has done that because he's proven that he can, but 
in order for him to be able to do that, he has to know the Meet Joe Black way of lighting so yeah. that he can go, this is how we get, this is how we make the bear attack feel this much worse, right? We don't we don't uh, put a giant 12 by 12 with a grid on it uh, next to Leonardo DiCaprio, right? right. We do, do this. Maybe earlier in my career, I would have thought, well, it's like, it's all reaction on set. And the longer you work, you realize none of that's true. It's like, yep. the, that's, it's, it's made so far in advance. I guess that gets into this philosophical um, problem of what is a prettier shot versus a better shot. And like, in a way, that's something I took a long time to sort of understand and relate to. But, but having talked it through the way we have, I can sort of understand why people like Roger Deakins are like, no, 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 you serve the story rather than as, as pretty and as flashy as possible. Yes, you, you absolutely have to do that. I think where my confusion and my frustration early on in my career was in those conversations, at least that access, like this is before the Roger Deakins podcast, like this is before you could just go straight to the horse's mouth and, and find out this information. You only had limited snippets of the information that those people were passing on. So then it became everybody thought, well, like, okay, yeah, you got to serve the story. But what does that mean if you don't know the end result of any of your choices? Like, how can you serve the story if you don't know what your choice ultimately results in? And that's the part that Roger can skip because he knows all those things. So if you're having a conversation with him, you say, of course, yeah, you got to serve the story. But if you don't know those things and you're trying to learn cinematography and you're just coming at it from like, well, I just, I'm going to let the story tell me. Um, and then I'll just guess what is going to actually result in that. That's like trying to guess, uh, you know, if you don't speak Spanish, trying to guess what Spanish means. You're just like, oh, it probably means that. I don't know. And I'm going to try that a hundred times and maybe I'll get closer to the actual definition of the Spanish word. It's like, well, that's, that's probably not the best way to go about it. You're going to make a lot of dog shit stuff for a long time. Or you could develop all of the skills to know what all of the decisions end up revealing in the image. You could just memorize those things and get really good at identifying those things. And then you can actually serve the story. You know what I mean? Then you then you are actively making a decision that will be impactful. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I really like that that example with uh, Roger Deakins. We we can say what we like about their creative work or whatever, and at the end of the day, we're just we we only had access to to little sound bites, and so we we didn't have access to the whole puzzle. And you know, while the the Spanish thing, <laughs> you know, it's certainly a way to do things, but um, yeah, like it's it's I guess it's the equivalent of shooting in a dark in in the dark to see the way forward and it's like you know that that can work but it's much better if you just get a flashlight and shine it on the the road in front of you and use that instead for sure yeah absolutely i, I mean i always say that the way that i learned cinematography you couldn't have learned it the way that i did uh five years before i did like you there's no way you couldn't have done it no there was just technical limitations so as the tools improve for being able to ingest content and be able to analyze it like it makes sense to to take advantage of that like i, I, I can't fathom how long? I mean, I can actually, I can, you look at cinematographers, successful cinematographers before the year 2000 and you realize why they were 70 years old. You realize why the content has got, or, or why the final images have gotten that much better. It took them like that you, long to figure out. Yeah, exactly. You had to watch a whole bunch of people do it before you. And, and it was so expensive and so resource intensive. Um, it was, it was, it would have been so much harder. That's why out of the gate now, if you, you know, and that's part of the, that's part of the knock on things like, uh, talking about cinematography in, in a framework sense is that you can legitimately uh, spend a year going down the Wandering DP podcast rabbit hole mm -hmm. and you can come out getting stuff that's 90% as close as what I can do and I've been doing it 10, 10 years every day. You know, like it's it's just a fast pass to getting to a point where um, 
everybody's on the same page and then it becomes about your creativity, which is the whole goal, I think. If you're starting out in cinematography and you want to fast track your career, I would say get to the point where uh, you know the end result of every possible decision that you could make because then you and I are on the same, we're on the same level. And we're on the same level as Roger and Greg and Bradford and all of those individuals. And if you're not getting images that, that are as good as theirs, uh, you're making subpar decisions. Like it's in that tree. Somewhere in that tree is something that you're either not doing or that you're doing uh, less efficiently. Um, but you have to get there by understanding the entire decision tree um, in order to make informed decisions. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked a lot about um, storytelling and, and creativity and the importance that plays in the career and the development of a cinematographer and a skilled um, cinematographer. So um, I know you've uh, ventured into doing more narrative um, and, and feature length uh, sort of films. If we circle back to the start of the podcast, your initial motivations were basically like, I need to make some money here and uh, mm. I need to get a career. I need to get this thing happening so I can move over to Australia and, and, and live with, with uh, my wife and, um, and, and provide for my family and that sort of thing. Um, so has that motivation um, with your um, feature filmmaking sort of stuff, has that um, motivation shifted? Can we take that, that um, feature sort of stuff as, as the sort of first glimpse of um, what's, what's more to come, I guess, in your career? I would say maybe in the future. I think in the past I would have been, uh, at least in the past few years, I would have been more reluctant to say I would venture into the feature world again, only because like the commercial world, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have, I didn't come up as a first assistant, like seeing what is actually involved in those things. I just talked to people on podcasts about it from my spare bedroom. I was like, wow, you did a film. It looks pretty good. That's just like a commercial, but longer. Uh, the thing that I didn't realize, or I never thought about, you know, you know, as you do commercials, it's like, of course, I want to do feature films. As soon as you get into it, you're like, well, you, you probably have way more creative freedom and it's more rewarding. And uh, it is seen still now in cinematography circles. Like you can be really great at commercial cinematography. Um, you can be at the apex of that, but it pales in comparison to uh, people who are in the narrative world, right? You just, it's, it's two different things. And the narrative world is always, in my mind, at least the pinnacle of what cinematography is and great cinematographers should be operating in that space. I didn't realize, the, I never thought about the lifestyle of that. And I never thought about the impact that that would have in every other domain of my life. And it is a huge, huge commitment. It's a huge change in the way that I normally live my life mm -hmm. that I'm not interested in the trade-offs at the moment. Uh, I, I have experienced that on a film and realized that at the time, at, at, as it stands now, I'm not interested in the sacrifices that are necessary to go out and make a, a feature film or a longer form project. Like that might change in the future, but at the moment, um, I just have zero interest from a, I certainly have interest sitting here now talking to you. It's like, would I love to go out and do another feature film? Like, yeah, the challenge is huge. And it's so rewarding when you're there on the day. But you are signing up for not seeing your family and being away from home and being in uncomfortable environments, in new environments for uh, extended periods of time. Extended periods of time. Like even on my podcast, people come on and they say, you know, I did this project and we were in Romania for nine months. And you hear it and you're like, okay, yeah, like I could do that. But they're in Romania for nine months months yep. working on this thing like you gotta love it you gotta love it and like i said i didn't grow up 
wanting to do movies. I didn't, I just thought, well, that's, that's the pinnacle. So everyone's career path is along that trajectory. Like everyone wants to do feature films. So I should probably want to do feature films. And as soon as I did one, I realized that much like you do in the commercial space, you get really successful in the commercial space. Um, there's one trajectory, right? It's like up and to the right, which means traveling more, uh, away from your family, bigger jobs, different responsibilities. Uh, there's no, you know, it's, it's very hard to pump the brakes once you get a little success in the international space. It's like that's, that becomes your network because you're no longer networking with the local people. So now you're just doing, you're on planes every day, all the time. And you're like, it sounds romantic at the beginning. You're like, yeah, of course, I'd be making really good money. I'm traveling all over the place to really cool places and we're getting uh, all this special access. And when you're on a set, if you know, if you've been on a commercial set as a cinematographer or director, like you're treated like royalty, like everybody's there to help you with your vision. And you come back to reality and you have all the same problems that you did before you left, but now you've been gone three weeks, uh, you know, in some far off distant place and you have your whole family to look after. And it's no surprise that the divorce rate and the broken families that happen in Absolutely. the film community, yeah, yeah. they just swept under the rug. Like we very, very rarely, because it's not a great conversation starter on the podcast to start with. So, uh, you know, you have a horrible family life and you haven't seen your kids. Uh, in the last 12 years. Yeah, Tell me yeah. about how, how that feels. It's like, oh, yeah. that's not and, a great thing. You've been married seven times or something and you've got like nine kids with each separate marriage or something. Yeah. But that's yeah. the way that I mean, and that's the way that it has to be. And even more so people think, uh, again, I never thought of it, but you look at like the, the, the tip of the spear in any profession. And it makes sense that it would certainly be like that in cinematography and in any other crew position. Like you talk to the top gaffers in the world they're, they are all in. If you're not all in, you are not going to get there. Absolutely. You are not going to get to that spot because you're not going to make the sacrifices necessary. And I know I am not willing to make those sacrifices. So that completely changed the trajectory of my career. Yep. Like 100%. I mean, I would, I wouldn't trade anything in the world for having done it, but talk about one moment, like shifting my entire life so much as the first day on set of a feature film, like that day, it exploded my worldview of where I was going to be and what I was going to be doing the rest of my life. Like I, I can't, uh, I don't think I can sell just how impactful it was because it was, yeah, just a huge pulling back the curtain and realizing like, Oh my God, I drastically underestimated the commitment from these individuals to make these things that we watch every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of insane to me that, that all this, this sacrifice and effort goes into, um, this thing that we end up, you know, in some way just putting up on a, a 70 foot cinema screen and we just sort of take it for granted. What gets lost in that is that, hey, we, we don't know how many families got destroyed by, you know, uh, X or Y actor being, you know, away from, you know, their, their, their spouse and their, their kids for, you know, <laughs> what, what really is almost like two years of, of their life. And, and yeah, it just gets totally missed. Yes. And, and... Yeah, the, the, it's one thing to focus even on cinematographers or directors at the top, but you see the, the immense sacrifice that hundreds of crew members make who are so much better. And that's one thing that is really good, uh, sort of humbling, is you see people that work in the narrative space, like crew members that work in the narrative space. Uh, if you think you're going to tell those people how to do their job, you are, you are dreaming. They have so much more experience than you. It's, you. You can never catch up as a cinematographer to the amount of experience that those people have on set doing their little portion of the job 
And that's one of those things where you think maybe I shouldn't have told that person, you know, a couple of years ago how to do how to be like a better second AC. Like they probably know because they've done, you know, four films this year, and that's equated to more mm-hmm. time than I've been set the last three years. It's mm-hmm. like they, it, it is a, it's a humbling experience and something that's it was so easy to forget. Um, just how how you get good at anything, like how the, how these people get really good at their job is they you have to love it or else. Uh, you're going to get found, you're going to get exposed really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And and so tell me about um, your experience with the separation, um, I guess, uh, from your family on this feature and how that contrasts with your, uh, your traveling for work. Because I know you do a lot of international travel. I mean, your podcast is quite literally called the Wandering DP podcast. And so... Naturally, your your career involves a lot of international travel, and so so what are some of the differences um, between how that works and and how that might work um, in the, the the commercial space versus the the feature film space? Yeah, I would say the biggest one is just the the chunk of commitment and, and time that is necessary, and how much everyone is putting in on the input side of things. So it's like in the in the feature world because it is a lifestyle because you are signing up to join this team that is making this thing that's why there's so much buy-in because people understand the sacrifices that they're going to make it's like you are on the job 24 7 trying to make this thing as good as you can because you love it that's what that's what you're there for that's why you do it uh so that big chunk and the energy that is involved with signing up for you know to do six months of a project that is that's just taken as a given for people that sign up for those things whereas in the commercial space you know, if you do a travel job, you fly in, you do three or four days or, you know, maybe on a big job, you do two weeks and then you're back home and you never have to think about it again. And you're on to the next crew and you're on to the next director. And those relationships that you have, you don't have, you know, you don't have to you have a second spouse for eight months that you're constantly dealing with. Like those decisions, yep. there's so much less gravity to the decisions in the commercial world because you're on to the next thing. And you're on to the next group of individuals. So your behavior also changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's, it's, it's a vastly, vastly different world. And even that being said, I have actively, I have actively reduced my travel uh, significantly since sort of post-COVID. Like once, once that world, in 2018, 2019, I would say I was, I was wandering. I was sort of all over the shop because that was, my thinking was get as su- successful as you can in the commercial space, which means getting on the, the best projects, which means uh, interacting with individuals working at the highest level, which is not going to be in your hometown, which means you're traveling all the time. And like I said before, as you do that, you, um, by default, you have to have less contact with your local network because you're branching out into other networks. As you do that, you, you, you maybe not be on the top of the list on local jobs anymore, but you're on the top of the list for jobs further afield. But what that means is then you get more jobs out there. Then you get more international jobs. And the better that you get, the more in demand that you become, the bigger the jobs that you'll be working on, the more time you're going to be away. So then it becomes like a personal choice. Do you want to do those things? Is that the goal? What is the point of uh, your career? What do you want to What do you want to do with your life, basically? And my decision was, I don't want to, I don't want to push the envelope that much to have the end goal me be me being away from my family three weeks out of a month. Mm-hmm. It's just not the 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 benefit uh, doesn't match uh, what I have to sacrifice. So then doing that, it's like, okay, well, that changes everything. Like that changes how you market yourself. That changes how you 
present yourself. Um, and then that changes the, the work that you get. You know, like I do way more retail. I do way, way, way more retail than I ever envisioned myself like being happy with. Um, but that's the sacrifice. That's the, that's what you get by, by not pursuing those things. I mean, I don't, I, I completely gave up on social media and uh, like self-promotion um, when I realized that the end path is, is it only gets more challenging from a lifestyle point of view. Um, and once you make that decision, uh, you know, you have to be comfortable with the, with what you're giving up. And so far, um, I have been satisfied with the results. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It sounds like, uh, the, the lifestyle, um, sort of change and shift has been mostly a positive one. So I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. And I can, I can sort of understand, um, intuitively why that would be the case. Um, you know, even just from the stories that we hear about um, people who work fly in, fly out and, and the divorce rates for, for those sort of careers. And, and we're only looking at people who are away for like two weeks at a time from home um, and then they're back for two weeks. And so like, yeah, like um, if, if it's not great for people who are working like that, then probably it isn't great for people who are doing that for, for years and, and months at a time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like anything, I mean, I think personality wise, uh, that's just, that's just my own, um, leanings. And, and I, I'm lucky enough to be in a spot where I can still get my, I can still get my cinematography creative juices flowing on my own in my little studio setup, just talking about it like that, that, that fills a hole for me that, uh, others don't maybe don't have access to, um, is I found a different area where I can still, be using my creative muscles, but in a, in an environment that is solely reliant on when I want to do it, as opposed to, uh, you know, flying around the world. And sometimes you look at the, fi the finished products, you're like, man, that would have been a fun job to do, or man, mm. I would really like that job on my reel. But, uh, I, I quickly remind myself of, uh, of just what's necessary to do that. And, yep. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly something I never, ever thought about when I was trying to become a cinematographer. I just, it just never crossed my mind. Maybe because it was so far removed from, like, I didn't need to think about it because it wasn't a possibility. But as soon as it pops up, you, it's very, 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 very hard to ignore. I can, I can even say from my perspective, it's just something that I've never really thought about deeply with um, regards to filmmaking. But I can, I can understand that when you get to a certain level, that becomes a, a real, real, um, a very, yeah, concrete reality. Um, and yeah, the, the there comes a point where it's like you have to decide is it like what what's going to go is it going to be the you know a bit of creativity and a bit of artistic expression or is it going to be the family goes on the line and yeah yeah, yeah i can and it's, it's never static it's like you know we had i, I had uh, an australian cinematographer on a couple of weeks ago danny roman super successful uh, big commercial cinematographer who's just now getting back into features and, and he made a comment saying it, I, I wasn't always in this position to be able to take on creative projects, but my, my kids have, uh, you know, grown up and they've left the house and now I'm in a position where, uh, I can do these things and not have to sacrifice on, on time. And so it's certainly, I don't imagine it being the case that if we were to have this conversation, uh, five years from now, my response would be the same, but it's, you know, just a period in life where, um, those are decisions that, that you are confronted with and you got, everyone has to make on their own. Do you see that as being something that's on the horizon in, 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 in a distant sense, in the sense of, you know, maybe when my kids like grown up and, and left the house and, 
you know, uh, I'm a little bit older. Maybe I can do more more narrative work. I think there's always the pull. I think everybody in the cinematography world would agree that because the the narrative is really thought of as the you know the the pinnacle of cinematography. It's like everyone. I, I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for myself. I would want to test myself to see if I could produce something um, of quality. Yes, absolutely. Like it would be in the back of my mind. If I didn't have any other responsibilities, I would love to see basically whether or not I'm, am I telling, am I telling myself, am I weaving myself a fantasy world saying that I know what I'm doing? <laughs> you know, because I've, I've always, hopefully, I've, I've always, uh, I've always prided myself on being as objective as I can with the results that I'm getting. Like, am I any good at this? I don't want to delude myself into thinking I know something that I don't. And talking about um, other people's work and um, judging my own talents and my own knowledge uh, versus what they've done is, is different than getting out there and doing it yourself. So I would, I would be lying if I said I, that urge to go out and test my skills isn't there uh, in longer form. It's just finding the right time to, to, uh, to be in a position to sacrifice um, everything else for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's, so it, it's, it's not for a lack of, of wanting to do that. It's more of just a practical and logical decision. Well, like I'd, I'd really like to, to have an intact family. And so as a result, I, I'm probably going to say no to a lot more um, uh, feature film sort of projects. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, family is certainly a huge aspect of it. But it's also, it's every other thing in your life. Like I've got, I... I've always had interests and it's something I preach on the podcast all the time because it's my own unique situation. I don't know anybody else's situation. I've always been uh, very hesitant to be all in on cinematography because it's a job where you don't get to pick when you work. And I don't like feeling vulnerable. I don't like being, I don't like the lack of security that comes when other people have to dictate when I, when and where I can make a living for myself. So I've always been uh, sort of one toe in the water and doing 10 other things. Um, so it's those things as well that I, I'm not willing to make a sacrifice on those elements of my life, whether it's recreation, whether it's doing the hobbies that I like to do outside of that. Like when I say, when you sign up for a feature film, you don't have any time to do any of those things. I mean that, like, I didn't realize that until I did one. And then you go, Oh my God, when somebody says I'm doing 14 hour days, six days a week for four months, they mean that. And it's like, again, it's easy to say. It's really hard to do when you realize fuck, all my hobbies are gone. All my, and maybe I'm the idiot for not knowing, not thinking it through. Obviously I am. I should have thought it through. Uh, but once it's in your face, you're like, oh my God, like this is way, way bigger than I thought it was going to be. This is not, uh, you know, shooting a commercial, uh, doing your 12 hours and going home and then seeing everybody next week when we do the next one. It's like, this is, and every scene is like, you know, it's not sometimes on a commercial. You can get a little dog shit commercial thing going and you're like, oh, you know, we gave it our best. It's like, no, this is going to be every day that you do in those 60 days is going to be in the film. The quality that you're able to get that day, that's what you live with forever. This completely changes how you approach things as well. So I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's an easy out the family, but it's also um, just everything in life, really. I guess we can we can sort of uh, like summarize it by saying that there's sacrifices that you have to make and you just have to, to weigh up um, what's worth sacrificing and, and what you're in um, in a position to sacrifice, I guess. Absolutely. And, and the proof is in the pudding where you look at the great work and the answer is you have to sacrifice everything. Hmm. If, you want to, if you want to do really great work because it, it takes such... The difference between something that looks pretty good and being on a project that is phenomenal is like exponentially 
more attention, exponentially more energy into that project. Um, and you realize that the more sets that you're on, the more you realize how hard it is to consistently deliver results that you're going to be happy with. It's, uh, yeah, um, it only deepened my respect for people that are able to get consistent results over a career. Like it's, it's uh, you know, it's not an accident that um, the people at the top are able to get the results that they get. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems to me to be true that um, that any level of um, success at all, no matter what your particular field is, requires some level of sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and being comfortable with that and, and knowing and thinking through the process, which is, um, yeah, what I what I had failed to do up until then, up until it was forced in my face. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Patrick, it's been uh, about two hours and eight minutes. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you and thank you so much for coming on. All good. It was a pleasure to be the first and uh, yeah, thanks for the conversation. No worries. And uh, yeah, so just as we wrap up, where can where can people find you on the, the online sphere? Uh, the easiest spot is if you just Google Wandering VP, I come up uh, or the, the, the podcast will come up and that's where the majority of the content is and now slowly but surely adding stuff over on YouTube uh, there. So you can definitely find me. Just type in Wandering DP. On. I'll, I'll appear somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your Instagram handle is just Wandering DP, right? It is. Yeah, I don't I don't use it anymore, but it's still there as a sort of a, a look into the past. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'll uh, have your, your links in the uh, description. And uh, yeah. Take care. Yes, you as well. Have a good day.